This week, before Dave Reichert can go on to lead the 20-year hunt for the Green River Killer, he first has to survive a near-fatal stabbing during a domestic violence call. Anyway, as I'm backing up, I fell over the coffee table backwards, and between the couch and the coffee table, he jumped on me, straddling me uh, with my face right in between his knees, and then he just started slashing away. And he caught me from right, right to in the back of the neck behind the ear and one big swipe across that muscle that runs down under your ear cut that muscle um, and then skipped over the uh, the muscle and hit just hit the uh, area where your jugular vein is it just skipped over my jug just missed it welcome to game of crimes everybody, welcome back to episode 13 of Game of Crimes. My name is Morgan Wright, and I am literally here with my partner in crime. Steve Murphy, but you can call me Murph. The Murph man is back. And folks, we want to say thank you for joining us. I'm, t- I'm telling you, after last week, it was huge, Steve. It was a huge episode. <laughs> man, we got we got more comments on that one than any show we have so far. I, and uh, they were saying Dom and uh, James Petrogalov, you know, from Small Town Murder, ought to get together. <laughs> man, I'm afraid, no, I, I think Dominic has got that mastered. You're not going to out F-bomb Dominic Polifron. <laughs> well, and that might lead to a murder somewhere. I'm not sure how that would go with, with James. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm telling you guys, though, but th- hey, thank you so much. Everybody's giving us feedback, telling us, you know, that they're saying, and actually we got a couple questions too, Steve, saying, do some of the guests listen to the episodes? And I will tell you right now, absolutely for Dominic, he's listened to both episode one or, you know, part one and two, and he loves it. He says it allowed him to, he's, he meant relive his youth, but the way he typed it was relieve his youth. And it, <laughs> he typed youth, Y-U-T-E, and I'm sure he meant youth. So, uh-huh. Oh, we got it. We got that down there. <laughs> you know, most of the people that we've interviewed have come back with good comments. I haven't talked to Michelle yet, uh, but I have talked to a lot of people that listened to hers, and, and they were just enamored with her, especially the ladies. I mean, she showed oh, yeah. women empowerment. It doesn't matter where you come from or who you are. You can make it to the top. You just got to hang in there and persevere. Uh, and I'll tell you what, we've got, if you like Michelle, we've got some other good ones coming up, too. So you all hang on. So anyway, hey, thank you guys for joining us. Just a quick bit of, house, bit of housekeeping. Let's get into this. First of all, if you're on Apple, it's like Disney, it's like Magic Kingdom, it's magic, it's five stars, you give us five stars, folks, and we're seeing us climb back up through the charts, you know, we're, we're putting in the time, putting in the episodes, and we want to say thank you for everything that you guys are doing. So it really helps us out a lot. Also, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We will be launching merch in the month of September. That is merch and Murph. We are launching both of them in the month of September. I'm easy, easy, but I'm not cheap. I'm telling you right now. (laughs) I'll give you a discount code for Murph. (laughs) And get on our mailing list, our email list. That's way we can make sure we stay in contact with you, let you know when episodes are coming out for sure and any other announcements we need to do. Also, Steve, I'm excited. Patreon, we had our first full month of Patreon. We have had lots of feedback from lots of people 
I, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it for the folks that are on Patreon over at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. I mean, we actually had, you know, at all the different levels, but we have got so much content already in the first month. Oh, yeah. Thank you guys so much. I'll echo what, what Morgan said, but probably more intelligently. We couldn't do any of that without you. If you didn't like it, we would do away with it. But the comments are so positive. Uh, you're coming up with great ideas. We're looking for more questions when we do our next Q&A. So, you know, don't be bashful about sending those into our website. Yeah, and because of some of your suggestions, we will be adding, we're going to put um, Cocaine Cowboys back in the rotation to vote on because it only missed out by one vote. We're going to put the greatest Christmas movie ever, Die Hard, yeah. up in the vote. <laughs> so yeah. you guys make sure you get there. Hey, and look, if you just want to give us a one-time, you know, help out for a pause for the cause, just go over to paypal.com and use our email, Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gamercrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to help support the show, show your enthusiasm and excitement. But as with always, Steve, there's always a disclaimer, isn't there? There is. And guess what? This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things, and we talk about bad people doing bad things to good people. I guarantee you this episode coming up is about a bad person doing something very bad. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, uh, yeah. So, but, but you know, guys, but again, and you'll see with this, we take the story seriously. But never, never, never ourselves. And the surprising thing about that is y'all seem to like that. So you guys are just as sick as we are. <laughs> Welcome into the crew here, players. That's right. That's right. Hey, but Steve, before we get into Game of Crimes, we actually have something special we're going to talk about in a minute. But guess what time it is? I'm going to guess it's probably a Barris Murph again time. You're whiffing it, baby. You're <laughs> whiffing it. Right. Let me just throw out a year right now before you even ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> You'll probably have a better chance. So let's get ready for it. You ready for Small Town Police Blotters? All right. And hey, here's the great thing about it, too. We are getting a lot more. I actually had to add stories to next episode, episode 14, with our money launderer. Um, we had to, because we're getting a lot of the people giving us ideas and sending us stories. Now, a couple of these... You might have heard, and a couple of them you may have missed on the page, but we're going to go with it anyway. So the first one comes from Dominique. I like the French name, Dominique Balsoma. She talks about, and this is, I know where this place is too. I used to know the chief of police there. Her name was Bernadette DePino. Ocean City, Maryland. In, in indecent exposure arrest, Murph, you wouldn't believe this. A Pennsylvania woman was arrested on indecent exposure charges after allegedly exposing her breast to police and restaurant workers in an uptown parking lot. Now, she probably had a little bit to drink, so they said she, uh, you know, officers were dispatched to check on the welfare of a female. Anyway, they advised that there was a woman passed out on the bench in the parking lot when they arrived and located the suspect, later identified as Marine McHale, 41, of Hatboro, Pennsylvania, lying on a bench with her hands thrown above her head, according to police reports. When asked if she could sit up, not only did she say yes, but then she lifted up her shirt, exposing her bra, and then when McHale was again asked to sit up, she then lifted up her bra, exposing her breast to the PD officers and four restaurant employees. I would have lost my lunch at that point. <laughs> Well, there's a couple things you got to consider here. First of all, you know, wonder what she looks like. <laughs> Second of all, it sounds like she's just being helpful with the cops to show she's not carrying weapons. And third, you've been to Ocean City. That's not unusual. That's not unusual. However, though, when she was arrested for indecent exposure, when she was being placed in handcuffs, she told the arresting officer, I'm going to explicative deleted kill you. Just you see. That's not a good way to end oh. your arrest. Well, that changes everything then. <laughs> <laughs> they were probably just going to take her back home and drop her off. Her, yeah, her not, hotel, not after that. Yeah. Hey, this next one comes from Mr. Meme himself, and he launched Helpless when we launched our first episodes. 
Hafid Cristobal, one angry bear's dad fan, I think it is on Twitter. He's, he's hilarious and his memes are great. <laughs> well, Steve, you know, I'm a musician. I, one of the bands I love is the Eagles. Well, however, Ron Newman of Chatham, Kent, this is apparently over in England, was sentenced to 140 hours community service by Croydon Crown Court after admitting he, his friend, after admitting hitting his friend over the head with a guitar because he kept playing the wrong chord in the Eagles' peaceful, easy feeling. <laughs> That's the way he hit him because it was peaceful and it was easy, right? <laughs> I got a peaceful whack! Oh, that oh, hurt. I got a headache. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this next one, too, I saw it on there. You probably saw this, too, but I just got to talk about it because this is so frickin' Kentucky. Columbus police arrest a Kentucky man after a low-speed bulldozer chase. <laughs> Hey, and take this seriously, too, because remember what happened in Colorado, that whole uh, episode with the guy they called the Killdozer? This guy was, I mean, he built that whole, but this guy, nowhere near the sophistication of the other guy. It began around 4 o'clock in the morning. Police say Adam Jackson of 26 of Gray, Kentucky, was told several times to stop the bulldozer, but he refused. He led them on a chase in a 19,000-pound bulldozer. Jackson <laughs> continuously made obscene gestures to police throughout the pursuit while reaching speeds as high as six miles an hour. Woohoo! Hang on. <laughs> well, when I say get in, sit down, shut up, hold on, there you go, six uh, miles an hour. <laughs> well, but then guess what? The Bartholomew County Sheriff's Office then used an armored vehicle to pull alongside Jackson, got him to stop, and arrested him in a Cummins parking lot near 3rd Street. He faces preliminary charges of resisting law enforcement vehicle theft, criminal recklessness, and felony stupidity. I just threw the last one in. I was going to say, being stupid after dark. That you know, that's <laughs> So many people go to jail because of that, because they just talk themselves right in. But, you know, think about it. Does every agency have an armored car? How do you stop a bulldozer? You, know, uh, you wait for it to run out of gas. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's the only way. I, you can't just shoot the driver, I mean, unless he's hurting somebody. But. Well, and this next one, too, comes from another one who's very active on the page, Jackie Samara Firos. Uh, she put this, posted this on the Game of Crimes fan group page on Facebook. Not our main Facebook group, but the Game of Crimes fan page. Uh, and the, that uh, our favorite mafia queen, you know, runs, too. So, <laughs> And, Steve, you replied on this, but it's West Virginia, so I couldn't let this go. A West Virginia man was charged for growing mon marijuana, saying he doesn't trust drug dealers. Right. I don't either. We're, we're, we're got that in common. Uh, so, so Keith Conroy of Buckhannon, West Virginia. Do you know where Buckhannon, West Virginia is? Uh, no. All right. Well, wherever it is, he was found after troopers found 16 plants uh, while searching Upshur County using a helicopter. Investigators found the plants growing in Conroy's garden. Conroy told the troopers he grew the marijuana plants because he didn't trust drug dealers and he didn't like pain pills. They also found marijuana inside his home. He is charged with cultivation of marijuana. How many plants was it? It's only 16. I mean, it's like they found mm. it. But, you know, we used to do aerial you know, detection in the air oh, actually yeah. with the DEA guys. You can yep. actually spot them in the middle of cornfields. But, yeah. Yep. Anyway, but, you know, but he was truthful, man. I just don't trust drug dealers, and I don't trust people, <laughs> you know, and didn't like pain pills. So He's a criminal. He's a criminal. That's all he is. Sarah, don't right. get mad at me for saying that. Don't say, Dad. Don't get mad at Steve. Hey, Steve, now. Okay, I'm going to let you guess. What year was it? We're ready for that. I'm just okay. going to let you guess a year and see if you're even close. 1912. No. So, uh, but let's talk about it. But you're kind of in the ballpark. What year was it? This one's going to be September 27th, and it's either going to be 1887, 1897, or 1907. This comes from the Passaic Daily News, Passaic, New Jersey. So, 
It is the Sunday police blotter. Only five small cases. The police blotter records five cases since yesterday. William Beliski of number 59, 2nd Street, was arrested for being drunk and disorderly and firing off his revolver. He was fined $6.80 and his gun confiscated. James B. Shanley was found hugging an old ash barrel. And Chuck Boker charged him $2.80. Now, they got a couple others here, but I thought one of the funny ones was... Uh, Erdman Frank of number 56 Van Winkle Avenue was charged with assault and battery by Louis Gale. Uh, Gale said Frank struck him over the head with a heavy cane. Frank said he had a good cause, but Judge Bowker held him in $100 for the grand jury. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. And then this last one here, too. A Columbia Avenue lady was in the police court this morning for making a common scold of herself. She got a good lecture from Judge Boker and was then released. Wow. She got scolded. Oh, yeah. A scolding for a scold. All right, Steve, so what year was it? And the Passaic Daily News, Passaic, New Jersey, was it September 27th, 1897, uh, or 1887, 1897, or 1907? Well, you know, one of the first things is they only had five reported crimes at Passaic. That had to be a long, long, long time ago. <laughs> um, and so I'm thinking, I'm going to guess 1897. What do we have for him, Johnny? You finally got one right. Yo! Hey! <laughs> hey! All right! All right! You thought this was just a dumb country hillbilly right here, didn't you? But I'm a redneck also, so I've got both bases covered. You know, well, even a stop clock is right twice a day, so you're eventually <laughs> going to get one. <laughs> and and I, I know our listeners can't see this, but read between the lines there, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, guys, before we get into the episode and tell you about it, there's actually something interesting we're doing. And Sarah from uh, Upside Down Digital Network, part of the Small Town Murder Group, has been helping us obviously market our show, get more awareness for it. One of the things she did, and this is unique, you only see this done in podcasting, Steve, we're actually doing what's called cross promos. We want to tell you about a new podcast that's out. Because at the same time, they're going to tell you about our podcast. And, and you don't see this. Do you ever see Coke share their secret formula with Pepsi or advertise for oh, them? Oh, no. This, this is all from Sarah, man. She's leading the way for us. Well, we know you like Game of Crimes because you're listening to it. So we want to tell you about a new show we think you're really going to love. Now, you guys might remember Rabia Chowdhury. She was Adnan Syed's advocate on Serial. And remember, Serial just blew up the whole podcasting world. She's also the host of her hit podcast, Undisclosed. Well, now, Robbie is back as a host of a brand new podcast called Nighty Night, Bedtime Stories to Keep You Awake. Nighty Night, you know, it's an anthology series. It's got adaptations of classic horror stories you may never heard of and fictionalized true life stories that are so frightening that you really start to think. Reality is scarier than fiction. Now, as an attorney, Robbie's job is to investigate and find the truth. Just follow the facts, no matter where they lead you. As the host of 99, it's going to be now her job to make you question which monsters are real and which are just in your head. And I know I got a lot of things in my head. So join Robbie as she tucks you into bed with stories that will leave you sleepless all night long. Subscribe to Cast Media's new podcast, 99, wherever you get your podcasts. You're waiting on this one, aren't you, Murph? I'm going to listen to one, but if I'm up all night, I'm going to call Sarah and get your number. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so nighty-night, everyone. So, hey, man, this is good. So, you know, we love doing this because, again, podcasting is an area where it's kind of a pay-it-forward thing. We really enjoy that. So. Cool. Please go listen. Yeah, please go listen, guys. Support the cause because they're doing it for us, and you know we want to be we want to be good citizens in the podcast community. So now, Steve, let's get ready. Let's set this up too because uh, this is one um, I helped work on and helped set up, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, 
it's the Green River Killer. We're going to do some promotion about this. So as you're listening to this on Monday, on Wednesday night, on our Facebook page, game or uh, facebook.com slash Game of Crimes podcast, facebook.com slash Game of Crimes podcast, we are going to have a live session with Dave Riker, the lead investigator for the Green River Killer, who hunted Gary Ridgway for 20 years. And so I think this is going to be, he's got a bunch of pictures he wants to share and talk about. And Steve, one of the other things too, I want to let people know too, they're going to hear some extended silence, you know, in our podcast. And you Mm -hmm. and I know when we were talking with him, Mm -hmm. there's a couple things in this part one that are very emotional for him. He nearly died, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, talking about losing his partner, talking about doing CPR on a baby. So when you hear extended silence, it's not an editing error. It's Dave is it, it's it really affected him, and this is somebody who hunted one of the worst serial killers in the United States, Steve, for twenty years. Absolutely, and, and this is so moving, uh, and and we're not doing this for dramatic effect or anything like that. Uh, and please don't send us any messages about oh you're recording you got too much dead space because we're doing this intentionally. But it's so you get the full feel of the story from Dave's point of view. I mean, these kind of cases, this became life consuming for him for years and years to catch somebody who, I mean, not to spoil this from Dave, uh, Morgan, but didn't he plead guilty to 48 or 49 mur- murders? 49. And then there's two more that they've been able to tie him to that they've actually now been able to identify the victim. So, yeah, next to Samuel Little, uh, I think the second worst uh, identified serial killer in the United States. Yeah, so that's that's the reason we're doing it. Dave was so gracious to to give us hours and hours of his time. Four and a half hours. To get this done, and that was a single sitting session. We might have had to take a few pee breaks there. That's because Morgan's old and he can't <laughs> control himself. Uh, but it, it really is a fantastic. I mean, Morgan, you did an f- a outstanding job bringing Dave Reichert into this interview. Well, and guys, just to let you know too, this was so important. We did we did a ton of research. I think when we started out, Murph was looking at me going, I had 40 pages of notes and yeah. we boiled it down to about 15. <laughs> like, holy cow, this looks like war and peace. Uh, but no, just in case you wanted to do, we do our research. We absolutely, Steve and I spend a ton of time doing research. So hey, let's do this. Let's get into this episode. This is a two-parter. Part one now, part two will come out on Thursday, but on Wednesday night, before we drop part two, head on over at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you're in the other parts of the world, you just got to go to the Google, to the internet thing and figure out what time zone it is. We'll record it. It'll be on there. But stay tuned. We're going to do a live session with Dave Reichert, the lead investigator for the Green River Killer. So Steve, I got to ask you. Are you ready to be a player in the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? Everybody, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Let's go listen to Dave Reichert. Phenomenal. Welcome, everybody. We have a very special episode, and I say this special from the bottom of my heart, because as a cop, as somebody who was alive and a cop during the time that this was going on, this is one of the biggest cases that people read about. It captured, obviously, the national attention, and it was Gary Ridgway, who was a.k.a. the Green River Killer, and the man who led the investigation for 20 years is with us on this episode. So you go by a lot of titles, but the one I want to refer to you as is Sheriff, because as Sheriff of King County, you brought this case to a close. So welcome, Sheriff Dave Reichert, to the podcast. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Steve. Happy to be here. And and, I'm just honored to 
have been asked to to participate in your um i think it's going to be a, a pretty interesting momentous show really highlighting some of the most notorious cases across the the country so um thanks for having me on Dave, it's it's an honor to have you on the show here. And the fact that we're getting ready to find out the inside scoop on this investigation, you know, I remember I started in law enforcement back in 75 and and all this was hitting the press back then. And and as it continued on throughout the time, uh, it is truly, and not just because you're on our show, it is a true honor to meet you virtually here on screen and for you to take the time out to talk to us. So, uh, and for those that you don't know, Dave is not only a uniformed police officer who eventually became sheriff, but uh, he's also a former member of our House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. So uh, if you ever want to thank a hero for his service to our country, Mr. Dave Reichert, thank you. Uh, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just busting on each other right before this started because you were making fun of Steve being just a typical Fed DEA. But actually, Steve, <laughs> Steve, one thread I've noticed is between all the great cases and the people we're talking to, there's one common thing. And, and uh, Sheriff, you'll 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 pick up on this and agree with this. Everybody started off in law enforcement as a street cop. You see a lot of these cases where they, they learned the road, they learned the ropes, they learned what it was like to actually be on the receiving end. And the best agents I ever worked with, whether it was a task force or anything else, were people who started their time off working on city or county police department or sheriff's office because they understood what it was like to be in that position. What do you yeah. think? Well, no, I agree, I agree with you. And, I, and actually, that's the best part of the entire job. You know, I think as all of us look back on our career, um, if I were to go back today, uh, even in today's environment, I'd want to go back and work the street. It's, it's just where I had the most fun, made the most connection to the community and, uh, you know, had the closest partnerships and friendships, uh, you know, with the sheriff's office and, and other police departments. You do those. Are, and, you know, unless you've been in this occupation uh, and what I tell people, you know, we get a lot of comments from young people saying, oh, you know, I read your book. I saw Narcos did this, did that. You've inspired me to join law enforcement. What's your advice? My first piece of advice is don't ever look at this as a job. This is this will become a lifestyle if you're professional and you do the job right. It affects everything in your life. It will affect your family. You know, I'm sorry to say that, you know, I know my priorities should be God, family, and then the job, but my priorities were completely opposite. You know, it seemed like the job always came first, but, you know, the good Lord gave me the ability to do the job, so he still gets the credit. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. I'm 100% in agreement. And uh, the other thing that uh, it, it does become a lifestyle, um, but I I really and I know that both of you did, too, because we've talked a little bit before. It's really a calling. Uh, you sort of feel it, uh, that, you know, that this is what I want to do. And then when you get there, you're going, yes, I mean, this is definitely what I was called to do. And um if you don't feel that within your first, uh, you know, year or so, then, uh, and I've seen a lot of people do that. They kind of move on saying, yeah, you know, it, it's a good job, but it's not really for me. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. They called it a job as opposed yeah. to, I never looked at it as a job. For me, it was, you're paying me to do this. It, like, especially when I was a trooper, I've got my own car. I can put my finger up to the wind and decide which way I'm going to go and what I'm going to do today. It's like, you got to be kidding me. This was like awesome. Yeah. 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 Your own your own boss in the car. Um 
But, uh, you know, you've got people that you're accountable to, that's for sure. But Oh, darn. I hate that accountability <laughs> part. <laughs> Just suck the fun right out of it right there. There we go. <laughs> well, well, but, the, but the ultimate accountability is to the big guy upstairs, you know, that, that called us in the first place and, right. uh, and gave us, like you said, Steve, you know, the opportunity to, to be uh, a servant. Yeah, and that's really... You know, that's really what drove me. Yeah. Who will I send? And I said, send me, Lord. You know, I said, raise your hand yes. and say, I'll, I'll be the one to go, right? So, yep. Dave, let's kick this off and let us take you back to I, what I read your book, did a lot of research. And by the way, I have to tell you, for Steve's benefit, because Steve is a very slow reader, I originally started out <laughs> with over 40 pages of notes. And I've condensed it down to about 10, you know, to get the relevant stuff here. But one of the things that stuck out from your bio, yeah, there's Steve flipping through the pages, you know, <laughs> still old school. You're killing trees, Steve. You're killing trees. And, right. and Dave's from a tree state. So one of the things that stuck out, Sheriff, was uh, one of the things it appeared that formulated maybe your desire to go into law enforcement. And I never really knew this. Uh, you don't get it from reading the documentaries and stuff, but it came from your book. When you were young... I mean, when you were age six or seven or eight, somebody tried to abduct you. Tell us, I mean, what? go, go into some detail on that. What was the day like? What were you doing? I mean, this is, I mean, this is back in the, what, uh, 50s, right? Or the early 60s? That, that stuff's not supposed to be happening back then. Yeah, it was, it was probably uh, 1960, 60, 59, 60, somewhere in there, 61. I was either 9, 10, or 11. You know, hard to remember back that long when you're 70. But, um, yeah, we, we, you know, I'm the oldest of seven. We grew up in, uh, uh, in the Renton Highlands, which is just uh, south and east of Seattle. It was a neighborhood that was um, uh, built for <clears throat> blue-collar workers, um, people that worked at, uh, at Boeing, which is right down the hill from there, people that worked at Pacific Car and Foundry, which was um, a company that made railroad trains and tracks, and it's now Kenworth Trucking. Um, interesting connection there. We'll talk about it a little bit later. But uh, so it was, you know, it was, a, it was just a hardcore, tough, blue-collar neighborhood, and, um, you know, family fights happening next door cops called to the the neighbor's house and and uh you know fights uh i grew up fighting and and uh and so that's sort of the neighborhood i grew up in but uh yeah when i was uh a little boy um i was with a couple of other friends and our mothers had packed us a little sack lunch you know we used to do that back then because we we didn't have video games, so we had a little paper sack, with, you know, <laughs> peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And off we marched into the woods to kind of build a little camp and play cowboys and Indians or, you know, or army or whatever. And uh, we're walking through the woods and these three guys, I learned later, were in their mid-20s. For some reason, just decided to grab the three of us and uh, they tied us to uh, some trees out in the woods, took our shirts off and uh, put our arms around the the tree. So we were hugging the, the, the tree and then tied our wrists together <clears throat> and then whipped us with uh, tree branches, took our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and stomped them into the dirt. 
and then made us made us eat them with the gravel and the rocks and whatever else was mixed in with the bread and the jelly and the peanut butter and left us tied there and then just were laughing and joking and get up and hit us a couple of times and <clears throat> eventually they got hungry they kept us there for a little while and and uh there happened to be a an old abandoned home nearby with an old apple tree in the backyard and so they decided to untie me and send me up this tree to get them something to eat um they should have thought ahead they could have eaten our peanut butter jelly sandwiches <laughs> but but so they sent me up this tree and i'm climbing this tree and i'm thinking oh the entire time how can i escape from these guys and i'm chucking apples down kind of lightly toss them as I climb down the tree and I get to the bottom limb and I've got a pretty good size apple in my hand and I let it fly and I hit one of them right in the face and then just jumped and ran like hell and uh, two of them started chasing me but you know a little kid in those trails I knew I knew the woods and was able to get home my dad called the cops and when we got back to this the site my buddies were still tied up to the tree but the, the guys were gone so i think they identified them later and i can't really can't remember what they did with them what the outcome was but um yeah so i i mean i you know that's that's sort of a an event that's you know you don't you don't forget in your lifetime but uh yeah and was there was there one before that too where your mother saved you from being uh pulled into a car Oh, yeah. So, well, that one actually came after, and that was in downtown Renton. We were visiting uh, a family that we were friends with, and back then, again, we played played marbles. You know, you drew, you got out your chalk, and you drew a circle, and you put your marbles, all your really precious little, the puries and the steely heads and cat's eyes and stuff like that. The young people today aren't going to have an clue what the hell I'm talking about here, <laughs> but, but uh, so we're playing marbles on the sidewalk, and this um, station wagon pulls up, and this guy jumps out, and out of all the little boys that were sitting there shooting marbles, he grabs me and uh, opens the back door and tries to stuff me into the back seat of this station wagon. And, of course, I'm fighting like hell. I was about the same age, uh, right between a 9, 10, 11 age. And um, kids are screaming, and they're trying to pull on him, on him and me. And pretty soon my mother runs out, and the neighbor lady, or the friend that we're with, runs out along with her. And they, they got a hold of my, my legs, and he's got a hold of my arms, and he's still trying to get me in and realizes that, he can't. So the neighbors are calling the police, <clears throat> and they've yelled at him. We've called the cops. He realizes he can't get into the back seat, and uh, too many people around. He jumps in his car and drives off. They did catch him, and uh, I remember uh, he was an escapee from Western State Mental Hospital, and uh, had 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 just picked that street to drive down and picked me to grab off the. <clears throat> off the sidewalk, but, um, uh, you know, who knows what would have happened if he'd have got me in that back. So he'd have had a fight on his hands, that for sure, that's for sure. But uh, fortunately, that, that didn't happen. 
Well, and the reason I wanted to highlight that is because when we start talking about some of these cases later, and I remember in the some of the tape-recorded interviews with Ridgeway, he couldn't care less about the sense of dread of impending doom he visited upon, you know, his ultimate victims. And I thought that story right there tells me about you you firsthand have an idea to say, you know what it's like to have that am I going to live? You know, am I going to die? You know, what's going to happen to me? And I think that served you well later in the investigation. Well, if you were if you were the oldest of seven kids, you know, your mom and dad, they kept putting that sign on your back that said, please take me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you right. were picked up twice in one year. Holy cow. That's, that's pretty bad. Uh, yeah, I know. That was, I've, I've had a, a life where, um, when I was on patrol, uh, the uh, after a few incidents happened to me that that my partners on either side of me and the districts on either side of me had pretty much decided they didn't want to work next to me because they as they said <laughs> shit seemed to follow me so <laughs> next thing you know you're going to be a bullet magnet nobody wants to be that <laughs> that's like being dirty harry callahan's partner nobody survives long as dirty harry's you know partner that's right man. that's right <laughs> hey well, yeah. well, well sure uh, go ahead I don't, well, I don't think it got that bad, but it was just like every time I turned around, there was some something happening to me. But, um, you know, I, I really never thought about uh, being afraid or um, I don't know if that's a little odd or not. But uh, in both of those incidents that we just talked about, it's, it was all about, OK, how do I get out of this? There, there's a way out. And how do I how do I do it? How do I escape? How do I fight? <clears throat> So, yeah, I don't remember being afraid, but I'm sure I was, you know, as a little boy, but I don't remember that. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads into then, you know, you have all of these things going on. And finally, around 1971, you decided you wanted to get into law enforcement. Why? I mean, you took the test for King County Sheriff. Um, and obviously, you know, we'll talk about you getting on in 72. But but what led you to that point to where you say, now I want to become uh, a sheriff's officer. You know, I want to become a cop. Yeah, I, I just think I, and you guys, I'm sure can identify with this too. I think all along that was kind of in the back of my mind, um, not not specific to law enforcement when I was younger, but I always had this desire to help people, to to protect people, to fight for people. You know, I, I never started a fight and I wasn't a very big guy when I was when I was growing up um you know today I'm I'm just you know pretty much average size six foot 190 but I um I started working out uh real early because I played a foot started playing tackle football when I was eight years old they could do that back then and not not worry about you know <laughs> getting hurt you, and you sometimes played without pads but um uh, I just have always been um, you, you had this I've always had this desire to make a difference in other people's lives and to protect uh, other people and to jump if somebody was being bullied um, I don't know something would just kind of click in me and I'd jump right in the middle of it I'd, I've had uh, my nose broken four times and the first time I, I was uh, I was in the sixth grade, and uh, I had heard about some kids who had ripped off the junior high school uh, near our home, and they were bragging about it. And so when I went to school the next day, I told 
one of the teachers, hey, these guys ripped off a junior high. They're the ones with the, you know, there there were three of them. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I'm walking home from school and these three guys pedal up on their bicycles and jump off their bikes. Two of them grab me, I grab each arm. They pin me my back against a telephone pole. And the other kid just pounded the crap out of my face. So they busted my nose, um, split my lip. I have a little scar here on my uh, right side of my lip and cracked my, my uh, front tooth. <clears throat> well, it's uh, a miracle we're having this podcast with you today. This interview is taking a completely different turn. <laughs> well, I re- you know, that's one I really remember. And you can tell I get a little choked up on that one, but... Um, because, um, my sister who then was in the fifth grade, uh, I see her running up the street with a, she picked up a branch that was bigger than she was and put it over her shoulder, running up the street, trying to, you know, come and and give me some help. But she couldn't, you know, she wasn't going to be able to help. But finally a neighbor comes out and, um, screams at the kids and, uh, you know, so yeah, it's you know it's kind of a tough neighborhood, but so I think those some of those things that happen to you when you're younger, they you know you, you become a victim of of those things, and then you become pretty incensed by people at people that are committing those crimes on other people, and so as you're growing up, uh, I decided to get tougher instead of get afraid, and uh, instead of be afraid. And then I decided, you know what, I'm not only going to protect myself, but I'm going to try to protect other people from having that happen to them. And especially my brothers and sisters, since being the oldest of seven, you kind of become their protectors too. And um, so that all kind of built into wanting to make a difference, wanting to help people, wanting to solve problems. And by the time I was in my uh, later high school years, I start. I started thinking about law enforcement, and then finally in '71, after I I was off of active duty Air Force, um, I came out and started taking police exams. You and Steve have something in common. Steve played football too, but he played without a helmet, and it shows. That's why he went to DEA. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I've had a few of those concussions too. So he and I. We might be able to relate to the same stars that we see floating around our heads. <laughs> the saving grace with DEA is we had intelligence analysts, so they were the smart people. Yeah, All to was be the bomb. <laughs> you talk about breaking your nose, so I have to dig- let I digress for just a moment. I was in the final week of the State Patrol Academy. You know, 2,000 people applied for these jobs. Only 16 of us got hired. And we're in the final week, and we're doing defense tactics. And one of the people in my class is a Capital Area Security Officer. They were the the people who guarded the governor's mansion and stuff like that. So they went through a mini academy. They still went through the patrol academy, but they were not uh, qualified, you know, at the same level the troopers were. So he's one of my partners in defense tactics. And, of course, the guy we have to do the two-on-one with is a football player. You know, and so I say, you know, we're trying to employ our techniques and this guy wusses out. He goes, he starts to go for his uh, ankles or whatever. And the guy just kind of taps him in the head and he's crying. He reaches back to punch him again. His elbow catches my nose, moves it over underneath my left eye. 
I was in the hospital, <laughs> morphine drip, needles under each nose. They had to, it was called a closed reduction. My graduation picture from the State Patrol Academy looked like somebody took two huge balloons, put them in my nose, you know, and that's the other. <laughs> so when you said you broke your nose, I, all you have to do is look at my nose now. And if you, I, okay, don't, you know, you know, well, it's... I- it, that hurt. I, I wasn't going to say anything, but <laughs> since you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably forget about that story. Now we're going to keep looking at your nose. <laughs> yeah. I always walk crooked because my nose yeah. is a little off center. But the, Yeah. Well, let's let's bring you back to 1971. You got out of the Air Force. Obviously, you were tired of having the great chow halls, the lack of physical exercise, and the, just the cushy job the Air Force has, being a former Army guy. Right. But, uh, I'll haul so, around my toolbox and my wrenches in the hangar. <laughs> uh, getting a bucket of turbo wash for somebody, a turbo, you know, crop you wash. Go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, real quickly, though, let, before we do that, let's explore that. Um, where did you go through basic at? You know, how long were you in the Air Force? Uh, and, you know, wh- what kind of jobs were where did you get stationed out? You know, what did you do before you finally came back to King County? Yeah, I I wanted to be a um, I wanted to be a loadmaster, but they told me I had a heart murmur, and I and I kind of looked at the Air Force doc and I said, well, you know, I've been, I mean, I played all three sports my my whole high school career, and then in into college, um, I played basketball, junior college basketball and football. And now I'm going into the Air Force, and they have me have a I have a heart murmur, and I go to my doctor, and he says, "Now you probably just had gas." But <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to the Air Force doctor, and he says, "Well, too late. We've already made our determination." So I think they needed, uh, you know, how they did it back then was uh, they didn't really keep their promises. So I ended up as a uh, neutrolics hydraulics technician. And which so I worked on all the flight controls and I was assigned to cargo aircraft. So mostly uh, um, 141s, C 141s, did a little work on C5s, 130s, 135s when they came in. Uh, But my goal was to fly back and forth to Vietnam uh, because that was the era and then also get get into the police work thing right away so i had both i wanted to do both i wanted to be a cop on the street but i also wanted to be in the vietnam uh, uh, effort uh i did but you know behind the scenes i i i just i had some friends um you know one that's uh lives nearby here who he did two tours over there as a sniper Army sniper and man, I just have such the, the greatest respect for those men who fought during that war, who were so disrespected when they came back. And he's, you know, he's suffering from diabetes, from heart disease, from the Agent Orange um, exposure, uh, alcoholic, uh, you know, which he's been able to overcome a little bit, but his health is already been compromised severely but what a hell of a guy he is and and all the all the others that i've known over the years so uh you know if i uh, i was happy to help in some way those cargo planes helped bring you know the equipment over that they needed but i was never in any danger obviously so uh for those folks who don't know tell po- people what a loadmaster is because there's a lot of specific jobs aboard uh, a lot of those big planes and a loadmaster is actually you get the load wrong, the plane goes down. Yep, 
So you you have to the loadmaster is responsible for properly loading the cargo planes with all the equipment that is needed in the 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 um, the war and uh, in the theater. And uh, yeah, if you don't balance the plane correctly, that that plane will when it when it tries to land on those short airfields, it can take off, it can crash on landing, or when it takes off, it may not take off. <laughs> And uh, so it's an important job. Plus, you you flew with your load, so you loaded the plane. You flew with the load. You landed in the in the theater with your load. Had total responsibility for it. Uh, those of those uh, listeners who are loadmasters, obviously, will you know that'll bring back a lot of memories for them. But uh, yeah, that's what I was really trying for. But so I I went to Lackland Air Force Base for my basic training. Um, and I think that was, I forget, it was six or eight weeks, whatever it was. And then I went to, um, uh, Chinute Air Force Base in Southern Illinois for, uh, my technical training. And that was two or three months. And, uh, and then was assigned to McCord Air Force Base for the rest of my reserve time, which allowed me to, to, uh, immediately sign up for the, uh, you know, to be a police officer. So I took two tests prior to uh, the sheriff's test, and they were told I was told I was too young because uh, I, you know, I was just about to turn 21 on one of the tests, and I just turned 21 on the other. They wanted somebody with more experience, but they life experience, but they didn't bother to ask me any questions about, you know. What I had already experienced <laughs> in my 20 years or 21 years. So when I took the sheriff's test in late um, uh, 1971, uh, <clears throat> I had just turned 21. And uh, like you said, there were, I, there were about 2,500 people that took the test. I was fortunate. Um, they hired, were hiring 110 people. Um, the test they gave back then was a was a civil service read and write and arithmetic. I'm dyslex- dyslexic. I can hardly even say it. Dyslexic, and uh, and so the math part of that, and uh, uh, they had math uh, story problems and stuff. So I had problems with that. I I got veterans preference because I was in the Air Force, so that helped with my score, but. Uh, I was number 82, I think, out of 110 people hired. So I didn't score very high on that test. So I'm sure that when the command staff uh, looked at the people they hired and where I was on the list, and in in the academy, I was pretty much in the middle of the pack. I wasn't the, you know, I wasn't the top uh, student in the academy. Physically, I was. Um, I was number one in in the areas in that area, but academically I wasn't. I'm sure they looked at my scores and said, "I I don't see this guy ever being the sheriff." But um, well, you know, the old joke is, "What do they call the person that graduates at the bottom of their class in medical school?" <laughs> yeah, exactly, doctor. <laughs> yeah, but I I just was really blessed to you know to be moving through my career in a way that put me in a place to to end up being the sheriff in King County when I finally retired. 
Well, let's work through that story to get to that point. So you started off, you applied in 71, you started work in 72, and obviously now in King County, I know it changed later. King County at that time was the sheriff elected. So they or just appointed? gone to an appointed sheriff a f- couple of years before, a year before, because uh, the sheriff in King County and the sheriff of Pierce County, the county just next to King, just south of King County, which is the city of Tacoma. People are SeaTac Airport, so Seattle's north, C- uh, Tacoma's south. Um, those sheriffs got into a little um, trouble. And uh, and so they were charged with crimes, <laughs> and the people decided, well, we're going to go to an appointed professional um, sheriff, and so they voted to have an appointed sheriff back in the early 70s, late 60s. Because that's unusual, because in most places the sheriff is elected, and we'll get into later, because that really sets the stage for that change for you later. But when you but when you started on, did you have a? I know in some places like L.A. County and or some other big sheriff's department, you have to work the jail first. Javier, we're talking to Steve's partner, Javier Pena. He had to work the jail first before going to the road. What was it like in King County? Did you work the jail, or did you did you go right to the road because yeah, you right. were an Air Force stud? You know, in a high. Uh, fo- <laughs> no, I you know I was a football stud. Maybe I'll put it that way. <laughs> at least I at least in my in my own mind I thought I was, but. Um, no, uh, when I started in in uh, 1972, I started on a federal grant, and uh, I left a job that where I was well, I was unloading uh, uh, box cars in a warehouse on graveyard shift, uh, making it after I get out of the Air Force. That's what I was doing until I got hired. Uh, I was making a thousand dollars a month doing that, and. Uh, Took, was taking the police tests, got hired by the sheriff's office. And when I started in the sheriff's office, I took a, about a $250 cut in pay to, to go into that. So I think I was making 700 or 750 a month to do the cop thing. And then you had to buy your own uniforms back then. So I had to take out a $350 loan uh to buy my <laughs> uniform the only thing i gave you was the badge and the gun back in those days and you had to buy your leather gear your the whole thing so so oh. uh yeah and and i got married just out of college out of junior college so right six months after i was married that's when i went into the air force and so um julie was trying to manage all the finances around making 700 bucks a month and paying off a loan for 350 wow and uh, a partner around of 110 bucks a month and buying food and stuff. It was okay, though. You know, cardboard boxes for furniture. That's how you kind of start. You know, everybody has that story, I think, back in those days. But And eating mac and cheese, yeah. uh, you know, and uh, yep. peanut butter and jelly yep. sandwiches. Little soup. Yeah. And... Although you might not lock PB&J after, yeah, you know, after your close call there. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and Steve have a lot in common, too. Steve left a high pay and he went from the police department to the railroad and left a, a good pay and how much how much of a pay cut did you take, Steve, to go to DEA? Oh, uh, it was gosh, I can't remember back that far now. It was probably about a 25 percent cut in pay. But within a matter of years, for whatever reason, in the late 80s, you know, they decided that they need to bring federal agents pay up to par with uh, state and locals, believe it or not, in some of the yeah. places, especially in the Northeast. 
And so over over a five or six year period, we were getting raises like twice a year, and, and it wasn't long before I was back up to my railroad pay, and then uh, moved good. on past that. Thank goodness. Yeah, it took me a little while to get back up there, but um, I knew right away it was the right decision. There were some in the in the warehouse. Those were the warehouse guys were going, "Are you nuts? <laughs> You're going to go out there and have people point guns at yeah. you for three hundred yeah. bucks a month less?" <laughs> they didn't hire us because we were real smart, did they? <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, uh, two right, out of three, yeah, maybe. Okay. Hold on, you know, I was I I was number two in my class. How um, do I just Morgan? <laughs> Morgan, how do I mute yeah. you on here? Let me let's see. You where can't. I can mute. Where's your mute button? Because <laughs> I'm in charge. <laughs> I'm the host. Hey, well, well, Dave, let's 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 talk about this, sheriff, because you get on board. But again. You have this, like you say, you're telling the other guys in the joining district, yeah. shit just seems to follow you. You had an early domestic violence call with a guy with a knife. T- tell us about that, because that was, you know, obviously domestic violence calls are one of the most dangerous calls for law enforcement in any event. And you came close to buying it that night. I, I did. Um, but uh, you know what? I realized I didn't answer your other question. Can I back up real quick and... Uh, you're the you're the guest. No, you can do I, anything you want, Sheriff. <laughs> now you tease. <laughs> yep. Well, you tease yep. the you know that story up, so maybe the listeners will hang on just a little bit longer. But I, I just wanted to finish. I, so I um, when I got hired, um, I went to patrol before the academy. They didn't have an academy set up. They hired so many of us in the beginning. They couldn't get us all in the academy. So I went to a two-week orientation, went to patrol after the two-week orientation for about two and a half months. Can you believe it? I mean, I got a badge and a gun, and in two and a half weeks, I'm in this orientation. Now I'm on patrol. And then they get the academy. uh, Actually, went to the academy and then got out. Then I went to the jail, worked in the jail almost a year. And at that time, they were trying to rotate people through because really... You know, when you're young like that, you don't want to, I didn't want to be in in the jail, but I learned a lot in there. It was a good experience. And um, and one of the experiences I had was, uh, so just an example of, you know, that stuff sort of follows you. Um, I uh, had an old, uh, the brother of one of my best friends in high school had gotten into drugs. And he was arrested. It was really a sad, it's a sad story. But today, the, the, the ending, he's not, he's, he's not in that lifestyle any longer. Christian, family, um, a hard worker. I mean, just an awesome guy, awesome family. But, you know, people sometimes just go astray and, and find their way. And he found his way. But the only one he would talk to and allow to even interact with was me because he recognized me. But he was high on... I think it was PCP back then, which was one of the most dangerous drugs in those days. But uh, I took him out of his holding cell where we kind of an observation cell. I took him out to use the uh, can. And after he was done, he, he jumped me. He was a state championship wrestler in high school and was well-built, tough kid and got me in a chokehold, put me down on my knees. And <clears throat> I, I felt myself blacking out and I was up against, I had his back up against the bars this back in the old days when the jail, the jails had bars. And so I decided I was trying to call attention to, you know, the fact that I was being choked to death. And, uh, 
had his banging his head against the bars and you could just hear him vibrate throughout the jail and finally somebody heard it came running over and they put their this officer <laughs> deputy put his two two of his fingers in his nostrils and just ripped ripped his nose back and he <laughs> let go and and we were able to wrestle him to the ground, cuff him, and we had to put him in restraints in a padded cell. Back then, you could use padded cells. He broke out of his straitjacket. That's how tough this guy was. Wow. Just ripped it apart. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I was lucky to escape that. But um, that's my jail, one of my jail stories. But I, I uh, yeah, early in my career on, the, on patrol, as you were, you were beginning to ask about Morgan, yeah. Well, hold okay. on, hold on. Before we get to patrol, there's got to be one more jail story there because it's like, first of all, you you you're running out of lives yeah, here, right. here I sheriff. Know. You know, <laughs> you've got nine. You're down to yeah. six or five now. So, what, <laughs> cat's got right. nothing on you. So, what's one other good story out of the jail before we get on to patrol here? Was there was there a, a funny one or a uh, another you know a dangerous one like that that really sticks out in your mind? Oh yeah, I mean you know jail's a tough tough place to be. Um, we had back in those days. I think we were only supposed to hold maybe seven hundred prisoners. We had a thousand to eleven hundred packed in there at at any one time. You know, and they were from you know they would come through from all the all the prisons and on their way to court and stuff. So you had some pretty pretty. Um, um, tough hombres in there, um, hardcore cons, and uh, yeah, I was working working one night graveyard shift and um, just walking around minding my own business. And uh, I left, and uh, after I left, I get up and I turn on the news, and I find out that one of our deputies was smuggling cocaine. They had uncovered this thing, smuggling cocaine into the jail. And uh, once they got him hooked, the prisoners got him hooked and hanging out there. Uh, now they asked him to bring a gun in. And uh, afterwards, you hear, you know, hear the version, the story of his version of it was he he was hurting. He had some gambling debts, you know, kind of a similar movie, kind of a plot here. Had to make some dough, so he started selling the prisoners drugs and got paid on the outside. Then they went for the gun because they were going to do an escape. Uh, what I learned is the, the floor I was working on, the pod that I was responsible for, there's a loaded 38 revolver that he had smuggled in, one of the prisoners had hidden under the toilet. Uh, you know, they take the little bolts off the toilets and hide the gun down into the wax seal. And uh, right after I left, um, they unscrewed the toilet, took the gun out, and put one of the officers, put the gun, once they were had opened the doors, to go into the day room. Um, they grabbed a cop and put the gun to his head and tried forcing their way out of the jail. So that, that's one where I escaped. <laughs> I was fortunate not to be there. Well, how did that, how did the situation resolve? What ended up happening on that? Uh, they ended up catching the guy. I think he got out. Um, they, they, they popped the doors for him and they caught him later. The officer was okay. But the deputy who was smuggling off, uh, obviously he was fired and was charged and went to prison. As he should. Yeah. Yep. Good. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's talk about another near death because I'm telling you, you, you're just like, 
this stuff just follows you. You got to remind me if we ever meet in person, we got to sit. Social distancing is only a start here. Um, so, so, but we're again, we're talking about domestic violence, one of the most dangerous calls you can go on in law enforcement. Um, and like I said, you, you had a, you hit the road now. How long were you on the road before you responded to this domestic violence call? Um, I was probably. A year and a half, so I was probably 23, somewhere around in there, pretty early in my career. Um, I got a domestic violence call. Uh, back then, they used to, you know, it was, uh, uh, we had numbers for call signs. We didn't yet go to the, you know, like the Adam 12 or George, George 3, I think was my call back then, but I think it was 10, 1030, something like that. <clears throat> And you get this car call, pick up the radio, and and back then it was family fight. They didn't they didn't use domestic violence. You know, you have a DV call. It was you have a family fight, uh, which I find kind of interesting. You know, in the in the change of language over the years, kind of the more we learn about those things, we label them differently. Uh, we mature a little bit in the way we describe those things and the way we respond to them. And and back then you go to a family fight, and um, the way that you resolved them was you tried to lure the. Usually there was somebody who was pretty intoxicated. You had to kind of lure them outside over the threshold, unless somebody was getting beat up. Then you could go inside if you heard screaming, and you could arrest somebody. But if all you heard was a bunch of yelling and no one was getting hurt. You had to kind of lure him out and get him for drunk in public, which, of course, that's not right. <laughs> that's not a crime anymore. <laughs> so we we would take them for drunk in public because there was no there was no DV law back then. Other than if if we could witness an assault, then we would take the person to jail, whether it was the you know the male or the female or two males fighting. You take them to one of them to jail. But um, when I arrived at this call. Uh, I was the first car there, and it's an area that we used to call Dog Patch, which is uh, was kind of notorious for uh, a lot of activity, criminal activity. And um, uh, when I arrived, I saw the husband in, in the uh, front room window, facing the window, so he was trying to attract the attention of his neighbors. Uh, he had his wife um, in a chokehold with his left arm standing in front of the window, and then he had a butcher knife in his right hand at her throat. And um, I, you know, when I drove up, I, I just, when I, you know, you say, you're 97, which is you've arrived. And uh, so I... I jumped out of the car, ran over to the window, and my goal was just to get his attention, distract him, and you know, hopefully he would forget that he was about to slit his wife's throat. <clears throat> and and sheriff, we're quick too. One thing is, at that time, you did did you or did you not have the handheld radios? Were you guys equipped with those at those times? No. So once you got out yeah. of your car, you're you're incommunicado. Yeah, you're by yourself. I so no portable radios back then. Um. And so I was just trying to distract him. My partners were on the way. I knew I knew that when I got out of the car because 
a couple of them responded and said, you know, en route. Uh, so usually when you had a had a, a family fight, domestic violence, um, you know, the other cars near you would would respond with, you know, I'm on my way to back them up. So I knew they were coming. <clears throat> and then they get when they arrived, I sort of slid off to the side out of the out of the view of the picture window uh, because the sergeant had kind of pointed, uh, you know, go off to the side. There was an open window bedroom window so I climbed in the bedroom window I had first taken off my my uh, my shoes back then we wore I know people may laugh at this but we wore actually a you know a uniform with a tie and uh, cowboy boots because we were sheriffs so we were wearing I was wearing black cowboy boots and had on a you know a tie and uh, I took the boots off because I didn't want to make any noise when I went through the window and hit the floor so I took the boots off, jumped in the window, made my way down the hallway, and I'm peeking around the corner, and um, I am waiting for him to drop the knife. I can see an empty bottle of wine sitting on the coffee table, so I think you could fairly assume that he has emptied that bottle of wine, and uh, you know that's helped him make the, the bad decisions that he's already made to get to the point where he is. and. Um, I, you know, I just couldn't wait any longer because I didn't want to be standing there, watch him slit her throat. Uh, I couldn't have lived with that, so <clears throat> I didn't want to see her die. So I uh, um, said a little prayer, and I just decided to rush him. And I mean, I sprinted across from the hall, end of the hallway to that. To where they were and he saw my reflection in the window coming up behind him and he started to turn toward me which caused him to loosen his grip on his wife so i grabbed her ran her down that sh it's i mean this is just like a 900 square foot house it's just a small little two-bedroom rambler shoved her out the window i came in and when i turned around he was on me with <clears throat> with the knife and uh Well, Bad yeah, I mean, just sometimes you think how close you came, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, because that knife, it got you from um, your right ear down to your esophagus, barely missing, you know, the jugular vein over there. I mean, it was like you were very close. Yeah. Yeah, he... he uh, when I turned and he was just slashing at me with it wildly. And uh, so I pushed him out into the hallway and was backing up back into the living room. And uh, just trying to, you know, get the knife. Uh, he had no time, no time to get my gun out of my holster. Um, you know, back then they were just, they were regular snap holsters, kind of a wild, wild west kind of a holster that was a swivel holster oh. so that when you sat in the police car, it could swivel yeah. up and sit next to you rather than jab you in your rib cage. But back then we didn't have bulletproof vests either until I think it was 1974 or five when we got the bulletproof vest. You could get one earlier if you could afford it and buy it yourself, but um, I, I couldn't afford to buy one. And they weighed about five, six pounds back then. 
And uh, so I can't remember if I had one on that day or not. But uh, anyway, as I'm backing up, I fell over the coffee table backwards. And between the couch and the coffee table, he jumped on me, straddling me. Uh, with my face right in between his knees and then he just started slashing away and he caught me from right right to in the back of the neck behind the ear and one big swipe across that muscle that runs down under your ear cut that muscle um, and then skipped over the uh, the muscle and hit just hit the uh, area where your jugular vein is, it just skipped over my jug, just missed it deep enough to just miss my jugular vein, hit me right in, came out just before my esophagus. And, uh, and then he turned the knife and came down to just stick it in me, just to stab it right straight into my throat. And I, I've caught it, um, I had my hands on his hands and he's pushing down and, you know, you've you've probably seen The Rock or somebody do some kind of a fancy move with, you know, twisting the knife around and sticking the guy in the neck. I wasn't quite that resourceful, but I was able to at least prevent him from sticking it in my throat. The, the blade of the knife, the tip of it, just hit my Adam's apple, and I have a little U-shaped scar where I'm moving my neck back and forth. My collar on my uniform shirt was was sliced three times. <clears throat> my shoulder was cut twice. Um, <clears throat> my, yeah. Um, We all have stories like this. This is this is one of the worst I've ever heard, though, I've got to say. I can't imagine. Well, Glad you're still with us. This still has an impact <laughs> on you to today. I mean, and it's this, if folks could see what we're seeing right now, because we're, we're all seeing each other in video, you know, people don't understand when you take this badge on, it's not for the money. You know, nobody does it for the money, right? And when you're in there and you're fighting for your right. life, it's a whole different mindset that you have to have yeah yeah that that was you know it was uh when he when he cut me the first time i felt the knife <clears throat> just you know just run right through he had been sharpening it all day uh it was really really sharp i just felt it go through and i felt the blood just kind of flow right down my chest and i said um you son of a bitch you stabbed me <laughs> I remember that saying that very clearly, and uh, <clears throat> you know, as I'm holding the knife away from my neck, trying to get the hell out of there, uh, finally, uh, the cops had busted down the. He had barricaded the front door. We couldn't see that from the front room window, and they had to run around at the back and kick the back door in. That's how they got in, and then pulled them off me, and then they. Um, uh, I got up to jump in the middle of it with him because your adrenaline's still going, you know. And a couple of them grabbed me and put me back on the couch and ran to their fridge and and uh, 
emptied the ice out of the refrigerator into a towel and packed my neck in ice. And back then we didn't have eight cars, you just had an ambulance. So ambulance showed up and ran me to the hospital and I ended up with about 40 stitches or so in my neck. Wow. Wow. How long were you, how long were you off duty? I think, you know, I, I remember getting a call from my sergeant, I think a month or so after, after this saying, Hey, we're shorthanded. When are you coming back? <laughs> we're paying a lot of overtime. So, uh, I think, you know, whatever length of time it is, I couldn't go back until I got the stitches out. So whenever I could, but my, you know, I, I, I have photos of this. The detectives took photos of it, but my whole right side of my neck was black and blue and swollen up because he'd cut this muscle. And uh, it, it almost looked like with the stitches going all the way from one, the back of my neck all the way to the front, like somebody had ripped my head off of one side and, and stuck it back on. Um, but, you know, I, after uh, I really wasn't, you know, physically hurt that bad. It was just that it was close to, you know, being killed. Uh, so I was probably back to work within a month or so, I guess, just, you know, right after the stitches got out. And uh, I'm thinking of a story I probably shouldn't tell because it was it was actually two weeks, about two weeks after I'd gone back to work. Uh, I feel bad. Maybe I'll tell it because I, I just feel this. This was this will help draw a picture even further about how sometimes you know back then there was no such thing as traumatic stress uh, syndrome. You know, I was just going to ask you about that, and I'm going to tee up for that because my thought was you're coming back after a month. You've just been through this. It's got to be doing yeah. something in your yeah. head. You, you don't know it. You don't really think about it until you start kind of looking back on it just a little bit. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, there were there were a couple of calls right after that that because you didn't go to you, you didn't go see a doctor. You didn't, you know, talk to a psychologist. You didn't have a a. Uh, you know, response team like they have today where they have members of the department go support you and, and, and help you through that stuff. You just went home, got stitches, got whatever, and went back to work. And uh, I, I remember uh, just maybe two or three nights after going back to work, I go to a man with a knife call. And I get to the call. The guy comes out of the this motor cheap motor home parked alongside the road he'd been running out in the street and bothering people and so i get there he jumps out with his butcher knife and um you know i i didn't i didn't mess around this time i just pulled my gun and i said you know drop it or you're dead because i'm not getting in another knife fight so He's dancing around. He's not dropping the knife. And finally, I, I uh, again, I said, uh, and pretty seriously, <laughs> drop the effing knife or you're gone. And 
I guess that's another point to make too. I felt like I went the, like the extra inch, that extra half a second, that extra quarter of a second before he pulled that trigger. I never shot anybody, uh, fortunately. And, and, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure glad that I never had to, to live with that and deal with that. But sometimes cops have to do that. Uh, and, um, he, he finally drops the knife. I holstered my gun and I walked up and I, I smacked that guy. Uh, I gave him a right, right in the face, knocked him to his ass and cuffed him. But I, I've never hit anybody before that, like that or after. But you were, you were pissed though, weren't you? You were pissed at the guy for putting you in that situation. I think, I think it was, it was even more, more than being just pissed about that. I was just, uh, you know, you, you just didn't want to, yeah, I just didn't want to be stabbed again. And I, I, that guy put a knife on me again, and I just got back from getting stabbed and you think about your family and all that stuff, you know? And so that's the things that, 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 that people don't, you know, go back to work like that. And you're confronted with that. Um, I, I went to another DV call and this was probably a month or so later. And, um, I drive up, the, I can hear the screaming in the house. Again, we have no portable radios. So I let him know I've arrived. I see him pushing her around through the window. She tries to open the door to get out. I see the front door open up. She's screaming, help, help, help. I run up, um, try to open the door. The door is locked. Can't get in the door. I run over to the window. He's looking at me, laughing. She's in the back trying to get out. All the doors are locked. She can't get out. He's got a hold of her hand. And he opens up the window, slides the living room window open, and hawks a loogie like you wouldn't believe and spits it right in the middle of my eyeballs. And that, boy, that pissed me off. I, I, I mean, and then, he, and then he slams the window shut and laughs. And, and now, she, now he's got a hold of her again, smacking her around. I ran back to the car to make sure my backup was on the way because I was going to kick the front door in. Um, she uh, she comes to the front door, opens it. I run I run to the front door and she says, "My husband is in the garage and he's going to kill himself." And uh, so I go to the garage door that leads into the kitchen and try to open it. It's locked. I kick that door in and he's sitting on a cardboard box in the garage and he's got a butcher knife and he's got it partially stuck into his stomach. And I get behind him and uh, grab him, pull the knife away from his stomach. He's bleeding uh, from the point of his knife hitting his stomach. And so now we're fighting and I've got a guy with a butcher knife again and he slits the side of my um, shirt where I had a vest on. Uh, I remember him hitting the vest this time and uh, I wasn't stabbed. I wasn't cut, but he was trying to. And uh, his neighbor hears the commotion and the guy is screaming police brutality. So the neighbor jumps on my back and puts me in a chokehold. So now, <laughs> now I got a guy on my back choking me and I got this guy with a knife trying to stick me with it. And I'm, yelling at her to call the comm center 
to get the cops here to help me. And back then it wasn't dial 911, so I'm getting choked and I'm telling her to call 206-323-9. You know, I'm rattling off this phone number <laughs> while I got a guy trying to stab me and one choking me. <laughs> so she's, and the phones back then, you know, your listeners, younger listeners need to remember were hooked to the wall. So she's in another room hooked to the wall with the phone. And I'm and yelling. a rotary phone too, so it takes a while to dial all of that. <laughs> yeah, so she's dialing that. And finally, my my partner gets there, rips the guy off me in, in the back, and I'm able to get the guy with the knife controlled, and we handcuff the two of them. But you know, I could go on, but those are just, those are just some of the things that you know. I I tell those stories too, and I'm glad you ask about them and have this opportunity to talk about them because, as you said, man, there are, there are cops out there every day doing this same stuff. Uh, I had a two-month-old baby die in my hands. I gave I gave that baby CPR. <clears throat> in the back of an ambulance for 15 minutes. It, it died on me. I went back to the precinct, and uh, I told... Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to pause. I told the sergeant, man... I don't know if I can go back out there. I need a, I need a break. He says, we, you know, we can't afford to have you. He says, the best way to deal with this is get your ass back in that police car. Go back to your patrol car. That's what I did. But uh, <clears throat> cops are doing that every day. That's what, like you said, Steve, man, that Absolutely. pisses me off. That people can't see that. And that, and that, a certain group of people out there in this world today are twisting what cops are and and our stupid politicians our arrogant politicians are believing that crap uh and 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 have turned full force against them and for, for our listeners too just for edification here there's nobody that hates a dirty cop more than a good cop so when you're dirty, when you make that decision to make a bad decision to to purposely violate the law, we think you should be thrown under the jail. It's not one of these things where, well, he wears the badge, we're going to take care of him. No, that's not what your job is. Your job is to you serve and protect the public. That's your job. You're a public servant. You know, you're not a macho guy. You're out there to serve the public. And I wore that as a badge of honor, and I can tell you did too, as well as Morgan. And the vast, vast majority of police officers also do the same. They want to help the public. So to our listeners out there, you're hearing heartfelt stories right now. You're looking at a, a true American hero. You're listening to one right now that's talking to you from the heart and telling you what he's experienced. This is what goes on out there. It's not the, the, the media just wants to to glorify or just expound on what one bad person does. And then you want to stereotype everybody. And we're all guilty of stereotyping. I do it. You know, I feel the same about politicians, to be quite honest with you. 
but uh, you know, this is this is. Yeah, I was one. <laughs> well, you're a recovering politician. You get a break. You know, but, right. but sheriff, you were mentioning that, and you struck home too because uh, there's two calls most cops don't want to get when you work the street. That's an officer down and a baby not breathing. And I got the same baby not yeah. breathing, an 18 month old uh, at the babysitters. I remember pulling up the squad car. I don't even close my door. I pull up on the wrong side of the street. I go running in, and same thing with you. I do CPR on this child for. I was an EMT at the time, but I remember doing CPR. I just come running out, get into the ambulance. I'm doing CPR for 45 minutes. And what struck home is my daughter at that time, my youngest, was not much older than that child. But, you know, you bring up, yeah. you bring up an issue. It, 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 there was, I was told the same thing. Well, just, you know, go back to work. Even if you're 50%, go back to work. And what they don't realize is the number one killer of law enforcement is not felonious assault. It's not even auto accidents. It's suicide. And it's the, it's mm-hmm. the untreated symptoms of depression. I've lost more friends through suicide that were cops than I have through line of duty deaths. And it is that yeah. it's one of the sad lessons we've had. To, it was so taboo. You didn't talk about suicide back in the 70s or 80s when I started. You didn't talk about it. It's only recently that we've actually started talking about the impact these types of calls over and over and over. And we can see uh, you're 70. You're, you're young for 70. You look good for 70. I can still see you work out, right? <laughs> but the impact it has on you at 70 years old. And some of these calls happened 40 years ago. <clears throat> and it still has yeah. this impact on you. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a hard vision to remove from your brain. And I think if you, you know... Or your heart. And I think if it was removed and it didn't affect you for your entire life, there's something yeah. wrong with you. You know, it's it's human life. And that's what we were born to do is protect um, human life. And, and um, you know, it, it, and that's the other thing. I, I haven't known any cops that have said, you know, I'm not going to this call because this person happens to be this religion. Or I'm not going to help this person because they happen to be this color. It doesn't matter. Somebody called me for help. I didn't ask, you know, (laughs) what they were all about, what they believed, or what country they came from. Um, They, you know, they were human beings and were all created by the same God, trying to make it through this life. And and uh, you did your job. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's, you know, it's, you don't look at your spiel like a hero. I just feel like I just did my job. Right. Well, let, let's let's talk about doing your job because, I mean, this is going on. And what I want to do is now start setting the stage for what comes later in your career. But one of the things you have to do is transition first is you have to go from the streets and you ended up working homicide. Was that your next assignment after working the streets, or did you have an uh, assignment in between? Uh, while I was on the street, I I started getting requests to, to go to different units. Um, you know, and you're always looking for the one that kind of fits you. I wanted to be a homicide detective. I got asked to go into, back then they called it street crime, which was a sort of an undercover kind of a street assignment, um, unmarked car, plain clothes, kind of intel gathering. Uh, and so that sort of appealed to me. So I applied for that. And then in the same week, I got asked to go into the, we called it the burglary larceny unit back in the day, this property crimes. 
And so I called my my good friend, my patrol buddy, who uh, had gone downtown as the homicide sergeant, and uh, he got promoted. <clears throat> what do you think I should do? And he says, well, I eventually would like to have you come down here and work homicide and robbery. If I were you, I'd go to burglary larceny. So that's what I did. Uh, I went there, was there 10 months, and I got asked to come downtown to be a homicide robbery detective, started out working robberies, uh, and then as a backup to homicide, and then became a homicide slash backup to robbery detective. That's how they kind of worked it in King County. So it was in property crimes first, and <clears throat> my sergeant in homicide and robbery was Sam Hicks, and um, he was, like I say, he was my one of my patrol partners on patrol. Um, we had some interesting experiences <laughs> to, together, but uh, he, I, I went down to homicide and robbery in 1979, uh, I think March or April, and Sam uh, and I worked a lot of cases together, obviously during that time and in june of 1982 uh he was out he had located a a guy that we've been look we've been looking for for quite a while for another murder and the guy ambushed him and shot him to death with a high-powered rifle and i as a homicide detective i was downtown and that's when i heard that he was shot we didn't know for sure he was dead yet. And the crook was um, on foot out in the foothills of the Cascades. And uh, I wanted to go out there, but they knew uh, he and I were good friends, best friends. So at first they wouldn't let me go. And I was going nuts downtown Seattle in the bullpen, uh, listening to the radio. <clears throat> Finally, they had identified the suspect um well not identified him because we knew who we were looking for but got a bunch of mug shots together that we could put out there so they had me deliver these mug shots to the command post out in the cascades and i took the opportunity just to stay out there and join the search they were concerned that i you know might do something that i shouldn't but after three days he was finally caught um the dogs caught him and um i happened to be the only homicide detective out there at the time just a short distance away from where the dog bit him in the ass and they they brought him back to to the street and they asked me to come down they put him in the back of a patrol car and um uh, this is one of the hardest things i've ever had to do this guy just shot and killed my best friend three days before. And I'm advising him of his rights in the back seat of that car. He's hungry and he's thirsty because he hasn't had anything to drink or eat for three days. He's upset because his handcuffs are too tight. So I loosened his handcuffs, advised him of his rights, took him to Burger King, bought him a burger and a Coke. And took him to jail. That's called professionalism, and I don't know how you did that. It was uh, it was not easy. 
Well, and and uh, I actually pulled up some of that on the Officer Down Memorial page, you know, took a look at him. He His picture up there is in uniform. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, the ODMP.org is a great site for people, especially guys like me. I have some of my friends are on there. I know your friends are on there. You know, everybody's got friends up on that wall. It's a, it's a bad wall, but at least it's a place you can, you know, memorialize that. But, you know, let's not, let's not leave this on too somber of a note because Sam, Sam kind of had a couple funny things. And one of the things you talk about is, uh, Sam was directionally challenged with Mace, I believe. He had a he had a problem one time with Mace, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, you know, Sam Sam was a great guy. We we that guy was one hundred and ten percent a cop and a Christian at the same time. And uh man, he would help anybody with anything. And uh <clears throat> he uh he and I were were looking for an armed robbery suspect, and we had finally tracked him down to this secluded house in in uh, south of Seattle. And uh, we were sneaking up on this place at about two o'clock in the morning in a again an unmarked car. We parked it down the driveway, you know, flipped the lights off and everything. We're sneaking up on this place, and we were going to capture this guy, and we get up to the back of the house and all of a sudden this big dog comes around. You can, you know, the big woof, woof, not a little, you know, not a not little a, not yappy a yip, dog, yip. but <laughs> this was going to be trouble. And then when we saw it, we knew we were in deep trouble. So at first we were just going to stay there and try to, you know, deal with it, but we could see this dog was going to attack us. So Sam, screamed in a pretty high girly voice this guy was six foot four you know weighed about 240 pounds he's screaming and he says run run and so we start sprinting back to the car um looking back over our shoulders and he's trying he's digging in his coat pocket finally pulls out the mace canister and tries to mace the dog but he had the mace canister pointed the wrong wrong way and he hits himself so when we jump i dive back in the car with him he's maced himself and now we're both maced because you know that stuff stays (laughs) holy cow so oh oh. we had to drive all the way home like that and then we came back the next night ready for the dog so and the mace pointed in the right yeah, direction. Yeah, the mace pointed in the right direction. We had a hunk of meat with us to help distract him. <laughs> and some sleeping pills inside of it, just like the movie. Yeah, right, hey, right, um, right. Well, this was 1982, but right before that, let's kind of set the stage, too, because there is a, a there is a, a obviously another heinous crime that sets the stage for what you're about to get involved with starting in July of 82. But prior to that, and this is a name everybody else knows too. It's Ted Bundy. He was operating in your in the Seattle and King County, Washington area, for about four years, if I remember right, like seventy four through seventy eight. So, talk to us now about your first experience about hearing about this guy named Ted, because later on he will become a factor in your case, in the Green River case. But it starts off like anything else. You just hear some rumblings, and then it starts becoming a big story. So, walk us through when you first heard about Ted what you heard about the case, how it was being worked. Yeah, I was, uh, I was on patrol, uh, then. And, um, Bob Keppel was the homicide detective. I think most people have probably heard Bob's name. He's done, there's been some documentaries and a couple of little movies, a couple of movies done about the Bundy case. And Bob's name has been very prominent as he was the lead detective 
in in the Bundy case, my role, uh, only role in the early Bundy years was as a patrol cop. We got the flyers with the VW bug as the suspect vehicle. And our job was to go to all the businesses, especially the local hangouts and taverns, and ask them to post that um, flyer with that VW bug as the as a suspect and his sort of mo of wearing an arm cast or a sling or on crutches you know to try to lure his his female victims to give him a hand to get to his car then get in his car and and they get in with him and they end up being uh, killed so that was my experience early on but um later uh, he he ends up writing a letter to, right. to us while we're investigating the Green River case. And we'll get into that in just a little bit, but I just want to set the stage is that this is something that Seattle dealt with, you guys were gripped with, because he ended up going to Utah and Colorado and, you know, and eventually Florida, uh, and was eventually obviously executed in Florida. And that's where we'll talk about your trip to Florida because of Ted Bundy. But let's let's stop here because now what we want to do is thing your life has already been affected in several ways but it's about to change forever and that starts not just about a month after your partner Sam Hicks was killed so now we're preparing for what is going to become uh, the biggest case in the United States for years until we get to Samuel Little um but at that time this case will have had the most bodies associated with it of of any serial killing case and it all started actually a week before you got the first call. This thing started. You had just buried your partner, Sam. He was uh, his end of watch. He was killed June twenty fourth, nineteen eighty two, and less less than uh, uh, two weeks, three weeks after that is the first body that starts this all, and it's Wendy Cofield, sixteen years old, um, and she was found in the Green River. But this was this case was actually found and worked originally by was it Kent? Yes. Yep. So, so they've got this first case, and it, obviously with the first body, nobody knows that we've got, we're starting this whole series of things. But you come into this less than a month later as well, too, or about a month later, right? So this is July 15th. July 12th, you, or August 12th, you get a call to go to um, uh, the meatpacking company, and, you, and the first body you come across is Deborah Lynn Bonner. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that, about when you showed up on the site, was any of this in the back of your mind at that time? Did you know about Wendy Cofield at that time? What was going through your head? Was this another, and I, you never use the word typical homicide, but you work a lot of homicides. Was this another homicide call, or did you have any inkling whatsoever that this was going to be more than what it appeared to be? So I, I did know about uh, Wendy Caulfield, uh, <clears throat> and actually, I was assigned um, to investigate the death of a 16-year-old who happened to be in the in the human trafficking world, which back then we called, you know, just we called prostitution world. Today we're using we use human trafficking, which is I think, uh, you know another terminology right another term that we've sort of evolved in using that is that is more applicable i think and better describes the victims and how they they are they don't really choose to be in this world uh there's lots of reasons why they end up there and i started to work on um 
the Leanne Wilcox case in January of 1982. So her body was found just south of uh, Seattle, <clears throat> strangled and dumped in a remote area. And I was working that case. And then in July, Wendy Caulfield was found. I called the Kent Police Department and we began to try and connect those two cases. Of course, you know, without any knowledge that what we have coming in the next couple of months. So we're trying to work on these two cases. We find out that they're cousins. Leanne and Wendy are cousins. So we thought, well, we've got that connection. Maybe they knew some of the same people. Maybe they had the same pimp. Uh, so we started looking at, at pimps. We started looking at Johns, obviously. So Leanne was, uh, is, again, the term of art back in the day was prostitution. But, she, but Leanne was living the same lifestyle Wendy was at the time? Yep, she was strangled uh, manually. She had uh, fingernail marks in the both sides of her neck, um, and uh, she was sixteen-year-old prostitute and dumped in a remote area. Wendy Caulfield was working in that world also. She was found on July twelfth in the river, hung up on a uh, some piling that was in the middle of the river. Two boys bicycling across the bridge spotted her body and called the Kent police. The Kent police and, and myself were working on those two cases together. And then on August 12th, we get another phone call report at the meatpacking plant. An employee came out the back door, was having a cigarette, and noticed a body floated, uh, floating face down, had landed at the tip of a sandbar in the river and uh, called called us. And uh, I was sent to investigate that scene because they knew I was already involved in, with the other two uh, investigations. <clears throat> Plus, it was in my area. Uh, each homicide detective had an area that they were responsible for. So um, I went to the Bonner site and processed that scene, recovered her body, began to uh, work to identify her because they, she was nude um, and had a ligature around her neck. Um, then three days later, on August 15th, the rafter floating down the Green River, just upriver from Debbie Bonner, spots two uh, what he thinks are mannequins up against the riverbank, and there are rocks piled on these two mannequins. And as he gets closer, however, he discovers these aren't these aren't mannequins; these are bodies. And so he calls the police. And when we finally talk to him, he this is the scene he describes. He's floating down the river. He comes around a bend, and he sees a guy standing on the riverbank. And uh, the guy waves at him. This it's a white male, you know, just nondescript clothing, really, just uh, everyday clothing. Waves at the rafter, the rafter waves back, they exchange pleasantries, and the rafter says this guy gets in a truck and drives away. <clears throat> so when I arrive, uh, patrol is already there. Obviously, they get the call first. They cordon off the scene, protect the scene. I get there, meet with them. 
hear what the rafter has to say. And I kind of, I, I try to scope out my job as a homicide detective, obviously, is to figure out how am I going to process this scene? How do I get down to the bodies in the first place? And uh, how did the suspect get the bodies down there? What path did he most likely take? Did he drag the bodies, carry the bodies? Were they alive? Did he kill them on the riverbank? You know, all those questions plus a hundred more are flying through your head. So you're trying to figure out how you're going to process this scene. We finally, I uh, finally come up with a plan, get uh, everybody together. We've got search and rescue teams on their way. Um, Sheriff, at that time, a lot of people watch too much TV and they think CSI and they think you've got all of these people with all this high-tech equipment going out there. What was it really like for you in July of 1982 when you were out there on the banks of the Green River? I mean, what kind of equipment did you have? I mean, what were you actually really equipped with to be able to process this? I have I have a, a cassette tape recorder. <laughs> Do we have to describe that to a lot of people? <laughs> it's like a rotary phone. Yeah. Cassette is something but, that predated like, CDs, you know, that and it came after eight tracks. Yes. Right. And it was actually, you know, tape inside the inside this little plastic container, right? That you put in a in a small tape recorder. And so, you know, you record every just about every step that you take and everything that you observe, I have that tape recorder going at 12.01, you know, I saw this, I did this. At 12.02, I saw this and I did this. Um, I also have a Mamiya 126 um, camera, which is the big, I mean, it's a big camera with multiple lenses, all are manual settings, so you, there's no... You know, this isn't an iPhone with a camera where you can get these awesome pictures of today, but you have to have these settings right. You have to make sure you've got batteries in, in your flash, batteries in the camera, and this is this is a heavy camera. So I'm, I'm recording, taking photographs, and I have a person with me who's keeping the photo log for me, handwritten, by the way. So every, every photo that I take... Um, Sue Peters was her name. She had just joined the sheriff's office, and this was uh, her first major scene. So she's taking the photo. And she and I, as we're moving through the area, we find another body on the riverbank. And this is Opal Mills. She has um, a ligature around her neck. And so now we have three bodies uh, on that Sunday, August 15th. And I was actually at home. We were about ready to have a birthday party for my daughter, my oldest daughter, whose birthday is August 16th. So on that Sunday, the entire family was headed over to the house. So and it was just another, um, it's, a, it, it's expected. Um, as soon as that phone you rang, knew, everybody right. knew, you know, that I'm right, that I'm going to have to leave. So, Well, let me put this into quick perspective, too, because as we go along, one of the things I've done is cataloged as we go through each of these areas. And I want to let people know, Wendy Lee Caulfield was 16 uh, when she disappeared on uh, July 8th. She was found on July 15th. Uh, Deborah Lynn Bonner 
was 23 when she disappeared on July 25th. She was found on the 12th. That was the first homicide you responded to at the meatpacking company. But then it was Marsha Faye Chapman, 31. She disappeared on August 1st, found on August 15th. Cynthia Jean Hines disappeared on August 11th, found on August 15th. And then it was Opal Mills, uh, who did, that was the body that you came across when you were doing the crime scene. She disappeared on August 12th and was discovered on August 15th. So what you have in a short amount of time are five young ladies, all, you know, uh, 30 ranging in age from 16 to 31, but all of them disappear in a short amount of time and are found by the Green River. Yeah. And we, you know, we we're assuming that uh, later we, we come to this conclusion, but we, we sort of, when the, when the river, when the um, river rafter is describing this man on the bank and he drives away in a truck, obviously, you know, the, the man on the bank is a suspect. Uh, the truck is a, is a suspect vehicle. Um, the description that we're given by the, the rafter is, you know, pretty nondescript. I mean, it's very vague. And, um, he he wasn't that close to them. He's he's close to him. He's in the river, quite a distance from him, up on the bank. So, you know, we didn't we didn't expect him to say, to give us a, you know, perfect description and grab a license plate because in August that that river bank is full of overgrown weeds, bushes, grass that that grass grows four or five feet high on that river bank river bank, and um, there's no way he could have seen a license plate. So. We have a, a a white male uh, standing on the bank, goes to a pickup truck and drives away, and that's all we have. But later we we sort of um, well we find out it's actually him standing on the bank, um, and he's he's just delivering, just dropping opal mills there. Back when we were at the site uh, at the site. We sort of assumed that was a possibility that he's either coming back to visit the bodies because he did that, he came back and had sex with the bodies, or he he just dropped that, just dropped Opal Mills. By him, you mean Gary Ridgway? Yeah, Ridgway. So, and that's what you discovered through his uh, interviews later after he had agreed to a deal. And it, we're, we're kind of skipping ahead, but you were really able to realize is that it was Gary Ridgway because of his confession after the deal was made. In '93, I think it was right. Right, it's the um, his confession was in 2001. Um, we arrested him in '01. Um, he he. Um, sorry, I sort of lost track of where we were there for a second. No, so. no, no. It was really what I'm saying is that you. It was pretty obvious that the guy was involved. The 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 one the rafter saw. But what I'm saying is, where you really concluded that is after his arrest. It took a it took about 18 months to work out a deal. But it was when Gary sat down and started doing the full debriefing with the detectives. You were able to confirm that it was in fact Gary Widgeway on the bank that day depositing Opal Mills' body. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Well. Yep. Yeah. And so I mean, like I said, so at this point, this is so. Tell us about the scene because you, with a, you know, it's one thing and um, uh, Steve with DEA, a little bit different experience, but having worked homicides, not, not near what you have, but you know, it takes a while to work a homicide scene. So you have um, Deborah Lynn Bonner, you know, as a single body, but how long did it take you to work a three body scene that day? And what kind of press did you have show up? What kind of distractions did you have to deal with processing a three body crime scene? Yeah. Well, I mean, Debbie Bonner took, 
you know, half a day, um, just with all the, you know, as you approach with all the photographs and the measurements and trying to keep um, her from floating down the river. We had divers come in and, and help. So it's, it's pretty um, all out effort to try to preserve every little thing that you, that you can. And um, on August 15th with three bodies, um, of course, you've got um, a number of detectives there. You've got a number of patrol officers there. The command staff um, is has decided they're going to come out too because, and I, I would have too, um, <clears throat> if I were in their positions, because now all of a sudden uh, there is no doubt you have a serial murderer working in our community. And... Um, they, they just wanted to make sure that we were covering all the bases. The news media did show up, and so they were, they were talking to the news media. Uh, there's not a whole lot you can give them other than we found three young women and girl, little girls you know, in the river were processing the scene. We don't even know who they are yet. So uh, we also have, of course, media helicopters uh, in, in the air above us um, trying to get some shots of everything. Um, I've called for the search and rescue team to come out uh, because now we know we have Wendy Caulfield, Debbie Bonner, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, Marsha Chapman. Now we're going to search the, you know, two miles of the riverbank looking for any uh, evidence that we can. So this this uh, scene processing began that day but went into the week because we went up and down that river bank. In fact, we got to the point where, I'll just give you an example of one of the things that one of the search and rescue young ladies um, found. So these these are people who are very dedicated people too. Man, we couldn't have done this without our search and rescue people. We were 2,500 volunteers uh, during this investigation to help us. But they were shoulder to shoulder from the road, shoulder of the road to the river bank on their hands and knees, going through blackberry bushes and small trees and the, all the tall grass, just cutting everything down, looking above it first and then going down to the base of the grass, just looking for anything. And and when they found something, the, the whole line has to stop. They raise their hand and then they call. So at one point, young lady stops, raises her hand, and um, I'm up at I'm further up the river. Somebody calls me and says, hey, you need to come and take a look at this. So I ran down, <clears throat> met the young lady, and she says, yeah, I think I found the tip of a finger. Uh, because we didn't know at that point, you know, whether there were any other bodies. So we're also looking for other bodies plus evidence. So um, I said, okay. So I got down on my hands and knees, and I'm slowly going through the grass. She's pointed it out. I could see something pink in there. And I finally get to it, and I pull this little pink thing out, and I and it's a uh, it's a steelhead fishing lure, <laughs> and uh, I mean I, it made me smile, and she was a little bit embarrassed, and I said, and the others were sort of chuckling a little bit, and I said, well, wait a minute, that was an awesome job, because in all of this you found brush, that. you're <laughs> right, you're looking you're looking so closely that you found a small little fishing lure i mean that was that was really good 
it wasn't useful to, to us, but I think we may have collected it anyway. But eventually what we find uh, is, a, uh, is a blouse uh, about half a mile or so downriver from Cynthia Hines, Marcia Chapman, and Opal Mills. And someone says, well, gee, this is a, it's a half a mile away from everything. You know, should we really take it? And I said, uh, well, yes. And so we collected that blouse. Um, and, I'll, and later I'll tell you how, when you get to that point, I'll explain how important that blouse became. Uh, and this is how cautious and thoughtful and thorough you have to be at, at these scenes. We, we collected 10,000 items of evidence, 40,000 tip sheets. But, but the evidence, um, some of the evidence we collected, I can describe later or whenever you want me to. Yeah, and I think we're, we'll do that as we go through this because I think what people need to understand is you guys had just, I mean, the, the visions, the shades of Ted Bundy were still visible in King County. It's not, I mean, it was a while back, but it was not so long ago. My first thought would be is one of the phone calls I'm making first, I think, is where's Ted Bundy? Has he escaped? You know, is he still in prison? You know, is that, you know because you, th- <laughs> yeah. you, you think that, right? And it's bad enough to have one serial killer. It's another thing now to have a second one so close in time that comes out of that. And that had to be extra pressure on top of you being the lead detective on this. Well, yeah, I mean, it was pressure on the command staff, definitely. They 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 felt it right away. And um, uh, they we, we had a little confab there in the street and decided that we were meeting in the morning uh, first thing to put a task force together, an internal task force, um, with the with the sheriff's office. So everyone who was assigned to, uh, so we had it kind of evolved into a major crimes unit now versus just homicide, robbery, and sex crimes separate sex crimes unit. We now had a major crimes unit with those three components. There were about twenty five detectives in that unit along with our vice unit and they were all included in the task force that we put together on monday and we were at the same time though continuing to work i went to the the medical examiner's office for the autopsies um, all you know for almost all of these victims if not all of them i don't think i missed one because you want to know exactly, you know, what what is the cause of death? Uh, we know it's strangulation, but was it ligature? Was it, you know, was it by hand? Was uh, what other uh, injuries to the to the body? Um, was she partially uh, alive when put in the water? Right. Is there any lung uh, water in the lungs? You know, all those things we're thinking about. So uh, we're trying to identify, there were some tattoos on some of the victims, um, and we start checking missing persons reports, because you really can't investigate the death until you find out who they are. Once you find out who they are, then you find out who their friends are, you find out who their friends are, you find out where they hang out, what they're doing, what kind of lifestyle they're involved in. You get to talk to find out what their, uh, who their family is, where they live, where they grew up. Uh, have they been in school, not been in school? Do the teachers know them? I mean, just, you know, aunts and uncles, cousins, everybody gets 
gets interviewed. Yeah, you got to be so, able to place a stake in the ground and start from there because once you know the identity of the victim, then their life starts unfolding and it gives you lines of inquiry and places you can go. And what made this really even more difficult, uh, Sheriff, was at that time in 1982, uh, computers, uh, nobody had heard of Microsoft yet. Nobody knew about them. You know, there's no such thing as Amazon in the Seattle area, right? (laughs) It was all, I mean, just like Murphy was before we started the show, he'd printed out everything. He's a tree killer. (laughs) You guys were killing a lot of trees to work this case. It was all paper-based. All paper. Yeah. When I, when I talk to, uh, you know, high school, even college classes today, um, and explain that we did this on a Rolodex file. I mean, it, I wait because as soon as I say Rolodex, the <laughs> hand shoots up. You know, what's, what's a Rolodex, Rolodex? sheriff? You know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I I always start out with that was the f- first computer because you know all of the information's on those three by five cards. They're all arranged and sorted in a way that you can find information quickly and correlate information. We did try to, in 84, 85, uh, I think um, there were some new computers. I think it was somebody was talking about Apple computers or something back then. I can't remember, but they just, they couldn't, there was no power in, uh, you know, they, they, they couldn't handle the amount of information that we were generating. We finally got a computer in 1986, and it was called the VAX computer, V-A-X, and it took up the entire, it took up an entire classroom. Wow. Oh yeah, and no, I I I remember yeah. the the old early IBM, you know, the small mini mainframes and the stuff like that. It was, but but see, but the thing is, but actually there was another computer involved here too, and that was the lead detective. That was you. And that's one of the reasons about having a lead detective is you had to be, in a sense, the supercomputer to be able to see everything that was going on because without computerization, it's so important that at least one person have a view of everything that's going on. And that was the role you ended up finding yourself in. Yeah. Yeah. I So I just sort of developed into the lead detective. Uh, it became official later, but everybody recognized me as because I had the first bodies. I had all the first bodies, and um, but I wasn't the real computer. The the computer was each and every one of the detectives. You know, combined their their um, minds with you know how do we want to approach this? I the the value i brought you know as the case goes on is that i was there from day 1 and was at every one of the scenes and people would come in and out you come into the if you came into the task force in 84 you missed the first 2 years of the case but if you stayed until 1990 you know you had that you had that really strong history from 84 through 90 when it was finally disbanded but i was there from from like I say, you know, I really count Wendy or uh, Wendy uh, Leanne Wilcox for me as the beginning of my investigation because it tied in right away with Wendy Caulfield in July. Even though Leanne Wilcox has never been attributed to Ridgeway, we had her on the list. We did arrest somebody uh, early on, but. Uh, he was never charged. We didn't have enough. So that's a case that still remains unsolved today. Wow. 
And, you know, as you start working through this, it's this is when, um, and let's talk a little bit too, because a lot of this area that ended up being tied with it was called PHS, Pacific Highway South. So at that time, you know, the um, I had a little bit of a detail here. At that time, the population of King County was about 1.7 you know, or 1.3 million. Um, today, now it's about 2.6 million. So it's basically doubled in size. It's 2,307 square miles. This is a huge county. And inside of that, you have PHS, Pacific Highway South. That kind of becomes the area known for, uh, again, we're using terms of art back in the day. It's, it's an area known for prostitution. So kind of lay out the scope of King County, because what I want to get into then is then after, tell us about that, and then I want to start getting into now some of the difficulties involving the press and surveillance. But let's let's let people know for sure. Tell us about Pacific Highway South, why that was such an area for prostitution, and why that became so important for this case later on. Yeah, we so that whole area was called the Strip, and uh, Pacific Highway South from Seattle, from South Seattle, all the way to um, almost North Tacoma, Federal Way, and local. Excuse me, local people will know Federal Way, but just to make it so it sort of associates with some who aren't familiar with the geography here, Pacific Highway South actually runs down the whole coast, all the way down through California. But if but this area we're talking about, Pacific Highway South, is from South Seattle to North Tacoma. And it's called the Strip, and especially uh, focused on the area in front of the SeaTac Airport. So back in those days, people flying in and out of SeaTac, hotels and low-income, I should say, dive motels where you could rent a motel room for four hours, and everybody knew why you were renting the room for four hours. You didn't plan to spend the night there, but illegal activity was taking place in these dive motels. <clears throat> I had handled some other cases, uh, murder cases, out of those motel rooms before Green River, where John uh, John was killed or Pimp was killed. But um, the whole purpose was rent the room, do your do your sex, um, you know, deals and then hop in your car with the pimp and move on to the next city. And uh, on a Friday or Saturday night, uh, you could probably find in, in that, maybe in a two to three mile area on the strip, five, six girls on a street corner. You could find, you know, you could count a hundred of them in, in that area. And we had, the, the sad thing is that back then you focused on arresting the prostitutes in the late 70s and not the Johns. And eventually, going into the 80s, we finally figured out we did John patrols. So we would put decoy uh, female officers out there as prostitutes, posing as prostitutes, and they would arrest the the Johns, which is where the focus should have been because... I think one of the things we forget, these these little girls and young women ended up on the street, in my opinion, because they, not, not all of them, 95, 96% of them, though, because they're running away from home. There's sexual abuse, domestic violence, emotional abuse, something going on at home that causes them to run away. Again, not all of them, because some of these victims came from very good, hardworking families who were trying to raise their kids right, and they just got caught up in the wrong with the wrong group. 
but they ended up on the street. They got victimized again by the pimps, drugs, and alcohol, and by the Johns. So these are kids that needed help. But we victimized them one more time in the criminal justice system because we arrested them and we took them to jail. And, uh, and we treated them like criminals. And, and we should have been a little bit more understanding of where they came from, why they got there, and what do they need right now so that they didn't get back on the streets. So um, <clears throat> we had hundreds of them on, on the strip area in front of that airport. So the, the people would land, the Johns would land in the, in the airport. They'd walk across the street to these hotels, motels. They'd meet the prostitutes on the streets and make a deal, take them into their hotel room, or they may meet them in the bar at the hotel. They were in the hotels working too, so which made it even harder. And then the, the thing about this case is that the Johns who were frequenting the strip who lived in Seattle-Tacoma area would drive up, stop at the, at the side of the road. Uh, you make a deal for 20 bucks. The window goes down, the door opens up, make the deal. The prostitute hops in the car and they disappear into the night. Which is why um, the difference between Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway is Ted Bundy was going after women whose, if they disappeared, they would be noticed right away because they were not on the fringes of society. They were not, you know, involved in prostitution. Uh, and and the what Gary Ridgway obviously correctly figured out is that if you went after prostitutes that had street names that, you know, nobody knew their real names or, you know, might disappear for days on end, and that would be normal. This is what, this is why he, I think he targeted them. And it was borne out later is that he targeted them because his thought was nobody cared about them. Right. Yep. And it was, and it was hard. It was, the, the difficulty in the case, you know, there's a number of things. The, the the girls changed their names, changed their birth date, changed their appearance, went by street names. Uh, so they, you know, you could have five different, somebody might say, hey, I saw a star at the corner of 144th and Pacific Highway South. Well, there could be 15 stars. Yeah, which star are we talking about? Right. Right. Then you got to figure out who star is. And star worked for a pimp by the name of, you know, whatever. And... Um, then you got to figure out which pimp it is and get that real name. The license plate numbers on the pimp's cars changed. Um, they changed their cars out. They traveled from Seattle to um, Anchorage, from Anchorage back down to Seattle, to Portland, to San Francisco, uh, L.A., San Diego, up to Vegas, Reno, and back up again to Seattle, and they just keep doing that. And so they were, they were moving, moving, changing their appearance, the, the whole stranger, uh, you know, murder uh, association between the murderer and the victim, you know, Ridgway didn't know these girls. He just drives up, picks one, and, uh, and takes them off into the night. And the rest of the Johns were doing the same thing. We had a number of Johns who um, we investigated. One got caught, picked up two prostitutes, bound them, put them in the back of a van, was driving through Seattle, they were able to um, work their way, their way free of the, the tape uh, that they were bound with, pop the back door of the van open, just happened to drive by a Seattle cop on a motorcycle, um, and the motorcycle cop ends up stopping him. Of course, that guy was a good suspect, <laughs> uh, but later we were able to figure out where he was, what he was doing, and eliminate him. 
so it's not like Ridgeway. Ridgeway is not an unusual character out there doing this. We had thousands of these guys out there. Uh, I often wondered how, you know, my wife and my my kids, my sisters, and you know, women in general could go from point A to point B without running into one of these guys. Yeah, and you know, and that's the thing is that this not only did it create complexity, but you had another complexity too, which was. This whole issue of the press being involved, because I know you set up uh, uh, surveillance in that area. I think it was called Frager Road, and you you thought that they might come back, right? And the entire operation was blown by the press helicopters uh, in the air. Yeah, so, um, you know, right after, I, I think this is, you know, something that any cop might do. You think about, okay, I've got um, a number of bodies in this one area, and... Uh, we're talking to the FBI profilers too, but we, you know, in case he comes back to dump another body, we were thinking, uh, we'll put uh, one car unmarked in the bushes at one end of the road and another at the other end. There's only two ways into this, into Frager Road from the north of the south end. There's no other side streets or anything like that. This farm was farmland. And um, so I think we're there two or three days, helicopters from the media are reporting on the scene, and every now and then you'd see them say, yeah, this is where this body was found, these are where these bodies were found. And um, eventually they saw something similar each time they flew over, and that was there's a car parked at either end of the road, and they soon figured out they were unmarked sheriff's cars uh, waiting for the suspect to return to either dump a body or, as we learned later, uh, have sex with the dead bodies, which Bun- which Bundy did and which Ridgeway did. They both did. Uh, anyway, they pointed out these unmarked cars at either end of the road on one of their news um, shows, which ended the surveillance. I, I think we... Because they came back, he came back, and he admitted when we finally caught him that he did come back. We could have gotten real lucky if they hadn't announced that and caught him coming back to that scene. So, how you know, it's one of those things. We do live in a free society, and there's freedom of the press. But at what point does the press need to have some restraint themselves? In other words, do you have the right to report stuff? Sure, but the question is, are would you if you knew that if you reported this, three more people would die, would you still report it? And that's the you know, right. to me that was just one of the tough things back then is I understand everybody is wants ratings. If it bleeds, it leads. But at some point you you know, in law enforcement we've all dealt with this. It's the at what point do you have to balance the needs of the press with the needs of the victims, the people who have died in this case and the people who are going to die to say, guys, why don't you use some common sense, good judgment and just back the F off and let us do our job and we'll come to you when we have some. But can you imagine what D-Day would have been like if uh, the press had been flying around saying, oh, we have a massing of, uh, you know, allied forces, you know, that look like they're going to land at Normandy. I mean, at some point, when do you know, so you were challenged with the press. I'm kind of rambling here to get to this point. How did you end up having to work with the press? How did you end up managing that, realizing that at the beginning it was obviously very contentious? Well, of course, we were pretty upset, to put it mildly, <laughs> over that little incident. But they weren't, uh, they weren't helpful to us uh, at all um, during this investigation. Um, 
As the investigation went on, the public got pretty frustrated because, and I understand that, we're not making progress as they see it. No one's been arrested and we're still, you know, as time goes on, we find more bodies. But the press starts to report, like, what's going on? Why can't they solve it? Uh, you know, Dave Reichert and the other detectives in this case have never worked a serial murder case before. Do they really know what they're doing? They're inept. And so what happens is our leads shut down because people now decide, well, if they don't know what the hell they're doing, why should I even call? They can't investigate the leads they have. Why should I give them another lead if I saw a pickup truck parked, you know, at 192nd and, and Pacific Highway South? Um, why should I report that? Because these idiots don't know what they're doing. So that's that hurt us. Uh, we, I tried to explain that to them. There were times they wanted to come in and talk to me. I refused to. I remember one time in particular, the commander said, look, you're, you know, you're the lead detective. We want you. They want to talk to you. I can talk to them, the captain said, but um, I already have, but they want to talk to you, and I want you to talk to them. So I said, okay, I'll do it. But I get 30 minutes to tell them what the hell I think about them before they get to ask me any questions. So that was the, that was the deal. And uh, so I, I, I went off on them for 30 minutes, man. I just I ripped them apart and didn't do any good, but I felt better <laughs> after that. I was at a crime scene up on the Star Lake Road with my team and all of us together. Uh, that week, we found there was one body found, but by the end of the week, we had six bodies that we recovered in, you know, in a, in a week. And so we're all pe feeling pretty, pretty, uh, exhausted and emotionally and physically exhausted because we're looking for, you know, bones, uh, all up and down this, uh, highway. And it's a sheer cliff drop off. Some of us are roped onto trees and we're trying to sift this site, and the media is upset because they're on the other side of the street, and they can't see what we're doing over the bank. So they went to one of the lieutenants, and the lieutenant allowed them to move across the street right on the shoulders. Now the cameras are pointed right down at the body site, one of the body sites that we're doing. With the sifting screens and all that stuff that we got set up, they could see everything that we were collecting. So... Um, my the team gets upset and says this is a bunch of bs so uh they asked if i'd go up and talk to the lieutenant see if they could move him back again so i went back up to this lieutenant he's no longer with us he's passed away years ago uh, <clears throat> and i said hey here's the deal the guys down there are really upset and explained the situation he said you know what you guys do your job uh, I'm I'm not moving the media back. There's they're they're where they are, so you guys you know deal with it. So I went back down and um, thinking on the way back down the bank, and I said, you know, here's the deal. He's not moving the media, but let's. So what we so what we did was we we put up some ropes, or tied them to trees. We had paper blankets there that we were sifting onto so then we could go through it again in a second sift we hung these paper blankets up on the ropes and blocked the view of the media all right there you go <laughs> <laughs> but we also did you know we did some psas they helped us out with that we we used the the some newspapers to 
plant little stories in at the direction of the FBI profilers to help elicit maybe uh, a response from the killer. And, um, you know, to, in one case, for example, a train went by um, one of the sites in Portland that, that I helped process um, where victims survived. And we put something in the paper um, that at the same time that that body was being dumped and the killer thought that he had killed this victim, she's able to struggle. She was raped and um, thrown over the bank for dead, and she was able to climb to the top of the hill, and some people in a motorhome found her. At that same time, a train goes by, so we suggested in the small article that we did um, that a witness on the train saw something. And so what we were hoping for is that the killer would call in and say, you know, I uh, uh, I just wonder if you guys are making any progress. Uh, I'm a concerned citizen. And um, we did have a couple of suspects who injected themselves into the investigation and in a similar scenario. Yeah, I'm just going to ask you about that, who may end up becoming a major what we call PETA, pain in the ass. And that was a gentleman by the name of Melvin Foster. Yeah. And what what struck me about Melvin was his morals. Melvin was a quite moral guy. He drew the line with sex with minors at age 15. At age 14, you were a pervert. But at 15, it was okay. And this guy would basically... He just not only it was it's kind of funny because he did some pretty stupid stuff like the time he chased you and uh, Detective Faye Brooks, you know, with the baseball bat. But 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 this guy did worse than that. <laughs> yeah. He diverted. He should have been charged with the crime, which I believe the British has. It's called wasting police resources. This guy should have been charged with felony wasting police resources for all the crap he did and distracted and created attention for himself and made you guys respond to it, and that took away from investigating the real case. Why? What? What was ultimately Melvin's endgame? Just the attention? Was this his, his fifteen minutes of fame that uh, ended up being, you know, fifteen weeks of fame? What was the deal? Yeah, I I think so. I think that you know he. It's hard to describe a personality like uh, like Melvin. Of course, he ended up not being the guy. Obviously. Um, but he called in to report somebody else as the suspect, um, a guy by the, that went by the street name of Cowboy. And we interviewed Cowboy. Uh, we couldn't find any connection to him other than he was, excuse me, other than that he was on the street in, in the middle of this prostitution world. And I think that Melvin and Cowboy had some kind of a conflict going on. And this was Mel, Melvin's way of getting back at, at, at this guy named cowboy but um it just you know i interviewed mel when he called in with this uh tip sheet and it just didn't feel right to me so i called him just to you know i asked him to come on in and just sit down and talk to me personally before we did that though we ran his name found out he had some warrants out for his arrest we asked him if he knew the victims he said no i didn't know him we put him in jail Overnight, we interview him the next day. All of a sudden, now we show him pictures. He knows the victims. He knows the ones in the river Opal Mills, Marsha Chapman, Cynthia Hines, Debbie Bonner. Now he can remember where he met each one, uh, where, he, where he used to drive them. So, of course, we're going to be suspicious. He lies in the beginning. First, 
within the profile description, he calls in to report somebody else. Now he's entered himself into the investigation. He has warrants out for his arrest. He lies about knowing victims. Now he, next day he does know the victims. Uh, we get enough on him where we can get a, a search warrant. We search his house and his car. We find in the trunk of his car nude photos of, of teenage girls um, and a pair of panties. He says that, um, yeah, he had sex with, you know, some girl. It was a, it was a girlfriend's pair of panties that she left behind. Um, and he had excuses for everything. We didn't have enough to arrest him on everything, anything. We couldn't find the girls in the photographs. Uh, and uh, we didn't find anything in the house, of course, to connect him. He, we put him under surveillance. Uh, he plays with his cat and mouse on, on our surveillance. And uh, eventually we have to put him on the back burner. More tips are coming in. We're, you know, we haven't put all of our resources on. Melvin, because as you guys know, you, you know, you, you might put a team on him, but the rest of the investigation continues. You have people that are working on identifying the bodies. You have people that are working on interviewing witnesses. You have people that are following up leads on other suspect tip sheets. You have people that are managing the evidence that you're finding and submitting request forms to have them examined, waiting for results to come back, hopefully. So all of that's still going on with Melvin Foster, but we got criticized because we focused on Melvin Foster. He wasn't the suspect, so we wasted all our time. We didn't do anything else. We ignored everything else, which is, of course, true, but the public didn't know that. The, me the media just made that piece up, which made them the public even more angry. So then we end up getting protesters and I understand that too. Um, you know, I wanted it solved. So did the rest of the team. But yeah, it's a difficult time. The media didn't didn't help us at all. You know, and that's interesting too because um, I've met so many swivel chair commandos. You know, who have perfect hindsight when they can look backwards on a case and say, "Oh, you should have done this. You should have done this." Great. Where was your terrific insight, you know, at the time saying you should be looking this way? And, and that's the problem. It's always easy to criticize. But again, we have to put this into the context of it's all paper based. There's no computers. There's no all of this fancy stuff that we have today that people expect more because of technology. But back then it was it was. And what made it what made it even more difficult, I think, was um, I know before you reached a point to where. They disbanded the uh, task force, but that was right before that, I believe, there was one more body discovered. It was uh, Giselle Ann Lavorne. She went missing on Sep or August, or I'm sorry, July 17th, 1982. She was found on September 25th, 1982. So now you've got another body. How long after that, the discovery of Giselle, did they decide that your work was done, there was nothing else, and that they were going to disband the task force? Because you ended up being the lone Ranger, you were the last person in room 1A holding onto the case at that point. Yeah, um, so that room 1A was the same room that um, Bob Keppel investigated Ted Bundy in. Um, that was called the Bundy Room. Wow. <laughs> so I ended, up, I ended up in the Bundy Room by myself, but that was uh, the end of 1982. Uh, they finally decided, you know, Mel Foster's been our only real viable suspect. We've got these other tip sheets, uh, we have six bodies, 
Uh, there's no progress. Our other cases are falling behind. Uh, we've got to reassign people back to their assignments, and we'll leave Dave Reichert with these with these bodies uh, up in the Bundy room. And then as we go into uh, 1983, I'm trying to, you might have it there in your records, but um, the first body in 83, I think was found sometime in August or September. Yeah, Linda Jane Rule um, disappeared on uh, September 26, 82. She was found on January 31st, 1983. Okay, so we find one. I'm still by myself, so now I have an extra extra uh, homicide. Finally, um, in September, uh, I, I'm asking for help. And um, I asked for, uh, I think I got five detectives to come up to the room, to, to 1A, to, to help me. And um, that's when we, we kind of put a little bit more effort back into Melvin Foster. That's when we started to kind of to focus on him again. Uh, we put him under surveillance because, again, he was the most viable suspect, and we were, we were beginning to find more bodies, so we needed to know where he was uh, during that time. And, and uh, tip sheets were still coming in. In fact, when I was up there, I think it was in January of 83, um, they were, uh, the other detectives were overloaded too, and so I was assigned another um, death investigation. It was a double death investigation case out on the SeaTac Strip, and it was a doctor and a nurse. Uh, that's another whole other story. But just add two more two more uh, homicides to my <laughs> to my list. Uh, but by the end of '83, I got five more detectives to help. In early 1984, uh, we got a new sheriff, and the new sheriff said, "You know, enough of this just." treading water and fooling around with this we're going to hammer this thing and we're going to catch this guy so he put together what uh, the administration de described as the enhanced task force and that was made up of um, people within the sheriff's office and other agencies where victims had disappeared from or bodies had been found so now we had a task force of about 50 or 60 detectives beginning in January, we started to build that team out. Well, and that's, but that's after too. And let's, there is one critical thing that happens during 1983 as well, because I think one of the worst months during that time, you had five women all go missing during April. Gail Lynn Matthews on uh, April 10th, Andrea Childers on April 14th, Sandra K. Gabbert on April 17th, Kimmy K. Pitzer on April 17th, but the one that got your first connection to Gary Ridgway was the disappearance of Marie Malvar on April 30th, because, go into detail on this, because this was your first contact with Gary Ridgway, because the pimp, the John, her boyfriend, saw the truck, even though he lost sight of it, they ended up finding the truck in Des Moines, Washington. This concludes part one of episode 13, Dave Reichert and his 20-year hunt for the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway. 
Now, stay tuned. Part two will be dropping on Thursday. However, if you're listening to this during the month of September 2021, we will be having a live event this coming Wednesday, September 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We will be streaming it to Facebook. It'll be on our webpage uh, at GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. It'll also be on our new YouTube page. We'll have links for everything in the episode notes. So make sure you join us this coming Wednesday, September 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern, if you want to hear from the actual person who investigated the Green River Killer case, and we might even take some of your questions. In the meantime, go check us out at patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got a ton of terrific content. We're adding more stuff every week to this. So we've got live streams, we've got Q&A, we've got the patented narcometer. At the same time, follow us, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. Go over on Twitter at Game of Crimes and Facebook and Instagram at Game of Crimes Podcast. So stay tuned for Dave Reichert and his 20-year hunt for the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway, coming out this Thursday. 